The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Diana. Okay, so what is on the agenda today? Today, I am speaking with Chris Selovich. Who's Chris Selovich? Well, he's an author. Um, mm-hmm. He's a journalist, broadcaster, novelist, screenwriter, uh, and he also worked for the magazines Q and NME. Primarily, he's an author of 15 books, including biographies on Bob Marley, Joe Strummer, Jimmy Page, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jagger, Richards. And in the 80s, he wrote a very good biography on Paul McCartney. He really gets their world and their experience and like the context. And so I was interested to see how Paul McCartney fit into all of this. And he brings a really informed perspective, obviously. Right. Like what's normal, what's not normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I really liked his book on McCartney. Like I actually got a sense of who he was as a person. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And he did this by, he spent a lot of time uh, in Liverpool interviewing Paul's, you know, the, 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 his fellow students, his friends, his family, his teachers. Like he did a lot of work uh, on Paul in the early years. And so you sort of mm-hmm. get what Paul's like core personality and traits are, which was really interesting. You get a good sense of what Paul was like as, as an individual. And there are some really consistent themes about Paul that explain his behaviors, his success, his failures, his eccentricities in a way that really counter some of the tropes and mythology around Paul that sort of define Paul today. Well, how was the conversation then? It was great. It was great. I, I really liked him. He seems like a really cool guy and he was great to talk to. And, all right, no, but also, but. <laughs> he, he also managed to get one of the all-time best interviews with Paul, uh, which you can find sort of a, a shoddy version on YouTube, but it's definitely worth checking out. All right. um, but it's an interview that he did with Paul in 1986. Like one of the few times Paul was like really open and willing to speak. And so for all these reasons, I wanted to talk to him. And I actually asked him if he brings all this context to every book he writes or Mm -hmm. if he treats all of them as individuals. And this is what he said. I do treat them all differently, but but obviously there are certain themes, you know, because it's almost, I mean, it's not the case with Paul McCartney, but there's a, it's like a modern myth, isn't it? Because, you know, the rock star who comes from usually humble or humblish beginnings rises, has great success, 
then it all goes wrong, basically. And then how do they cope with their lives? Yeah. I mean, it's like a modern, really, they're like, it's like a modern archetype. It's of, it's of this time, very much. So that's right. And they can't handle it, and they have a hard time dealing with yeah, it. wrong? How do they deal with it? Often that's the most interesting part of the story. Or they all like Bob Marley, they die. You know? But that kind of, that arc of kind of like coming from, you know, humble origins, colossal success, and then what happens? It's all over. I mean, I think it was Paul McCartney who said something to the effect of like, how he'd survived was they kept looking, you know, they kept finding new and new peaks and plateaus to reach. And then they got to the very top and essentially found there was nothing there. Mm. So then he became himself. Yeah, that's really interesting. One one of the, the themes is like, how did Paul McCartney actually survive it when so many of these others didn't? I think in some ways that kind of undermines the mythology around Paul. When I look at sort of the narrative, because he just says, well, I'm just a normal guy and, you know, I'm just a normal bloke and... You know, he didn't have the same struggles and pain that some of these others did. And I don't necessarily think that's true at all. Not true, no. Yes, but it, it sort of plays into that. Like, we love this, the, the torture genius story. Yeah, but he, he's but Paul doesn't want to play that game. And, uh, I mean, Paul, one of Paul's things, he was the natural communicator in The Beatles. You know, that's part of He knows that's part of his role, unconsciously, probably. Mm-hmm. But he was the one who drove The Beatles along. You know, John said, you know, when when he turned up at um, the church fate, when Paul turns up, John is incredibly impressed with him, with his ability, you know, his, his musical ability. So it's kind of like it's, he was already an outstanding kind of figure. And, his, you know, his even his teachers at school will say that about him. You know, that he was obviously destined for something. They did seem to recognise that in him. Take two. Also, they'd had all that experience, for example, in Hamburg, you know, which must have been very, very bonding. You know, they're living together in pretty rough conditions and learning their craft at the same time and all other manner of things would have gone on, you know, but they're kind of, they're growing up together at that point. You know, I think Hamburg's important because they're growing up together in a sort of rarefied atmosphere, really. Hamburg's important, but the way it's told right now is, you know, that they worked a lot, that they performed a lot, but the story kind of gets dominated by the, the John Paul Stewart triangle, which is unfortunate because I think that it takes the focus off of the tremendous growth that they had musically. Yeah, yeah, obviously, that's it. That's their kind of, you know, that's their grounding, really. That's how they learn, you know, if you're playing five sets a night or whatever it is, that's how you learn to be a, you learn your craft. That's how you learn to be a great musician or a good musician. Yeah, yeah, and you say something in the book that it, it gave them freedom to try stuff. I mean, obviously, it gave them time because they had to be playing so many hours on the stage, but it also, you know, they didn't have people around to judge them. It gave them freedom to sort of develop their own thing. Of course, of course. And, and you know, there would be, I'm sure in Liverpool, there would have been people sort of begrudging them, you know, begrudging them for what they're trying to do. Uh, it's just inevitable. You know, that's how people are, you know, old schoolmates or whatever. But they're isolated in in Germany, so they can really, you know, you can. That's therefore they can be themselves. Yeah. And 
and you know, beyond the the social side of Germany, I mean, mo- half of their time or most of their time was on stage, and I I do agree yeah. that the John Paul bonding musically, you know, just how they perform together, which is you know so important, and George. Uh, would have really happened there. Yeah, of course, of course. You know, have you ever come across Pauline Sutcliffe? Yes. Oh, I haven't talked to her. I mean, I've read some of her stuff. Stuart's sister, yeah. She's an interesting character in that she has really promoted some ideas that, you know, have taken root in people's imaginations, but they're not necessarily founded on anything. I think that she was against Paul and gave Philip Norman a lot of his angle. I'm going to jump into uh, your book. One of the things that, that I love about your book was that you spent really good time, obviously, researching and considering Paul's early years. And the really interesting yeah. thing about that is he came off as a fully formed person outside of the Beatles. Mm. So I think that the the digging that you did was absolutely like foundational, really, because honestly, you know, I've read a million Beatles books and articles, and it's even getting worse these days where John's personality has taken over so much, including Paul's experience. Yeah, I know. That to go back and see all of these quotes that actually counter a lot of the mythology that's increasingly growing even, even though Paul's got a pretty great reputation right now. What happened really, obviously, you know, in the light of John's murder, you know, I mean, he was sort of sanctified. It was like his apotheosis, wasn't it? He suddenly was St. John. And, um, uh, I mean, that's really what happened. And and everyone everyone adored him, you know, really, because he passed away. Why did you write the book when you did? I wrote the book literally for the reasons I, I told you earlier, that I knew I'd worked, I'd started working on the NME in 74. And so I would hear stories, you know, over the years about the Beatles, because the Beatles were the first group I ever saw. I loved the yeah. Beatles. Um, uh, that, you know, oh, you know, the, the contrary to what one was hearing in the 70s, oh, the, the Beatles were just Lennon's group. no. But Paul McCartney was the driving force in the Beatles, that he kept the whole thing going all along. And I just, you know, I wanted to write this book and state that, really, you know, because I thought it was, I thought the balance was was incorrect. So that's really why I wanted to do it, actually. Does that balance, um, did that balance happen after the breakup or was that already an idea in the 60s? I don't think it was that was the view in the sixties. No, no, I you know we haven't come across that. It seems much much more usual. Post Beatles and people people analysing the fact that the Beatles had split up, and Paul seems to get the uh, the blame for it, and then he's you know he's caught up in 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 all the legal stuff, and the other three going for Klein and Paul being totally against it because Linda Eastman, you know, who, his wife by then. Uh, you know, her family and her brother were, were kind of very, they, they were kind of showbiz lawyers and they knew the running. Paul was obviously just told what was going on. Yeah. And he, you know, the fact that he also put out that album, you know, the first out, al- the first solo yeah, yeah, album. McCartney. Yeah, McCartney. Uh, and, and in the press copies, he includes a question and answer interview by himself. You know, he's asking the questions and answering them himself. And I think it was seen as being a bit sneaky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some ideas that 
took hold there of him being sneaky and underhanded and but we're not but we're not talking about the fact that you know he he'd um you know some of the last sessions they'd been doing he didn't turn up at um abbey road one day and john and, and then he i think he phones the studio and says you know it's like the anniversary of him meeting linda and they're gonna have dinner that night together and john goes round there furious it's not very long distance from you know it's a few hundred yards maybe half a mile or something from Abbey Road to to Paul's place on Cavendish Avenue in St John's Wood, and John barges in and takes a painting that he'd given Paul off the wall and puts his foot through it. I mean, this is like this, this, this isn't very rational, guy. No. Well, him doing that, I mean, it's incredibly telling, you know. Yeah, I know, no, no, I know. It says that John. It almost says that John's broken hearted. And also, it's extremely petty as well. I think that you tapped into something that is important that hasn't been picked up. Like John's, John is very disparaging of Linda throughout the his interviews in the seventies, and people somehow didn't notice this. Yeah, I know. But there is a competitiveness with John. There's a competitiveness, and also there's it's also a love affair. It's an unconscious love affair. In what way? You know, you have these you have these kind of creative collaborations with people, and there's kind of like it's complex. I'm, I'm not I'm not saying anything ever happened between it. I'm sure it I'm sure it didn't. But you know, you can you can work with someone very closely, and it's it's not just a professional thing going on. You know, there's like you look at and learns about people. You know, they, their case they would have known intimately about each other. So you know, it engenders a sort of yeah, people. I think people get heartache from those situations, not well, from the professional aspect. There's such a deep bond there with the person that you're creating with. Yeah, it's very intimate. It's very intimate. Because you're bearing, you're literally bearing your souls together. You know, yeah. John and Paul loved each other enough to combine their names. Like that, that wasn't just a business decision at 16 or whatever it was. It was like, sure. this person I love and trust to be yeah. my partner, you know? Yeah. And I actually think that it's underestimated how much John cared about Paul as well. I agree. And also John is, you kind of feel John's capable of more hurt, being hurt, don't you? Than, than you do. That's what, when Paul is talking to you in the Q interview in 1986, he's circling this. He's like, I guess Yoko had made, made a statement that Paul had hurt John more than anyone else. And he was like, what did I do? You know, I, I announced the breakup and he seems to be trying to figure out how he hurt John. And I think Paul really underestimated how much John cared. That's my take. But looking back on it, I did think, okay, let's try and let's try and analyze how John was hurt. What was he hurt by? What was the single biggest thing that we can find in all our research that hurt John? And the biggest thing I can find is that I told the world the Beatles were finished. So well, John's very sensitive. They're both sensitive, you know. I know Marvin Gaye saying this, we're all sensitive people and people are. But John is very sensitive, you know, in that kind of creative way. I mean, which is not to say Paul isn't. But but you can kind of imagine tears forming in John's eyes more readily than you can in Paul's, I think. May Pang wrote a book about John and she said John cried all the time. Yeah. You know, a lot has been said about Paul 
and Yoko and John, like that triangle. Because John kind of positioned Paul as being not nice to Yoko, this relationship has been focused. John wouldn't have met Yoko if it hadn't had been Paul for Paul, you know, who kind of inv- gets them to come down to the Indica Gallery. Yeah. When we looked into it, like we listened to all the Let It Be tapes and all the interviews that he gave in 68, 69, 70, and he's surprisingly supportive of John and Yoko. Yeah. So, you know, so it was surprising to us that this idea is so dominant. What I found interesting in your book is that you give a couple of examples that showcase John's issue that stem that sort of is around Paul and Linda. There just does seem to be a bit of jealousy there and and possessiveness that again John never articulated. No, but they're obviously, you know, in a relationship like that, you know, whether it's kind of physical or, or just uh, subconscious, you know, there, there would be a love between them, you know, the genuine love between Paul and John. There's no doubt of that, you right. know. And, um, you know, and, and so, you know, Linda, Linda appears and Paul is obviously in love with her. And John, John who's a bit insecure about all this stuff, I think, and, and apparently John was always disturbed about his own inability to do what Paul did which was just to find a girl, you know, go off with her, sleep with her, and that's sort of it, basically. Yes. Maybe got it the next day. John couldn't do that, probably because he's far more, you know, he's a, he's obviously maybe more emotional, you know, in his relationship. Maybe he wants more out of his relationship, as his relationship with Yoko would seem to suggest, and his relationship with Cynthia, in fact. You know, I mean, fix it out, you know. It's a great sort of northern working class thing, even though John's not actually working class, you know. Right. It's, it's, you know, it, it, it's a northern thing. You know, you get the, the girl pregnant, will you marry her? That's what you did yeah. then. But it doesn't mean that he didn't love her. Oh, no, there's lots of support. Again, it's it's like the, the mythology that took, took root in the 70s erases Cynthia. It, this is the problem that, you know, it erases Cynthia and it erases Paul's importance to John. They'd spent all this time together, you know, uh, in very close proximity. You know, you get to know people, obviously, in a much in a much deeper way, in such relationships. And it seems, and it seems interesting that uh, Paul marries Linda, and nine days later, only nine days later, John marries Yoko. What is the real reason? You know, it, it, oh well, okay, I'll show you. you married her, all right, I'll marry her then. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Well, it it is, but it's kind of like um, it's kind of like when couples, you know, break up and then one ends up with one. It's like okay, the other one wants to end up with somebody else too. It, yeah. Apparently, John heard that Paul got married and was like, "We need to get married immediately." I'm sure they were very competitive. Well, yes, I mean that's kind of a defining part of their relationship too. But do you think it's just because? Paul and Linda got married first. I just think it's part of the poetry of their existences together, really, which neither of them would have understood at the time, and we probably don't quite understand it now. But it, it you know, it's all manner of it's rivalries. It's it's uh, you know, thwarted love between the two of them, platonic love, and uh, a little bit of perhaps a little bit of insecurity on John's part. I think John's much more insecure than Paul. Right. Listen, listen. Uh, let's not uh, overlook the fact. That, that you know, John and 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 Yoko are getting into sort of full blown heroin addiction at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's what Paul does. And I mean, this isn't in my book, but apparently Paul was Paul around the same period, or sixty seven, sixty eight, 
He he was doing a lot of coke, but that stopped. Yeah. But that did yeah. stop. But you know, I'm not saying oh, coke's better than heroin. But, you know, <laughs> right. we know we, you know we know heroin is not very good for you. You know, yeah. I was disappointed when I heard that John Lennon was doing heroin. That's pretty major. Like that should be really taken into account of what was going on here, because everybody treats him like he was totally rational at the time, and generally heroin addicts are not. You know. No, obviously. Well, you said obviously, but you would not know that from reading about the break. Yeah, I suppose so. There's some defining traits in your book about Paul. Like, just top of mind, how would you describe Paul as a person? Driven, open to everything, um, honest, uh, absolutely dedicated workman, very hardworking. You can't do that without being very hardworking. I mean, it's all good fun, you know, like. You know, people can talk, you know, they had a great time in Hamburg, what a laugh it was. They're working unbelievably hard. And, he, and an artist. He's an artist. He's a, you know, he's not. It's incorrect. Oh, he's just a musician. Well, that that unfortunately denigrates musicians. But he's more than that. He's an, he is a, an artist. That's what's driven him. I love his paintings, actually. Yeah, yeah. And you make the point that that's, that's sort of his persona right from the start. Yeah, that's what that's what's keeping him going in a, that inner creativity, which luckily he kind of figures out quite early. I mean, they started writing songs together. That showed a lot of nerve. How to do this? Yes, we can. We're going to try and do it. Yeah, you you write about this, and, and Spitz in his book has a, a bit too that like when Paul brought a song to John, John was just like, "What?" Yeah, and then he responded pretty quickly. Yeah. But, but I think that it is this idea that it it was inner with them. Like the fact that Paul just started doing it does yeah. just... just Because it's almost like considered heresy. You can't be allowed to do this. Who says you can do this? Yeah. They figured it out, you know? The same as, like, say, Carol King figured it out when she's 14, you know? That's really crucial to the Beatles. What do you think people get wrong about Paul? Like, you know, just what would you like to correct? Oh, a lot. You know, all this stuff like, oh, he's, you know, he's a breadhead. No, he's actually very generous. Uh, uh, you know, he's petty, small-minded. I think he's the one who's, you know, I think all that battering that he took in the 80s, you know, you'd have to be a, you'd have to be a very strong man to actually take that and carry on. I just think I quite like the fact that he's such a big pothead myself. But anyway, that <laughs> comes down to my own preferences in life. But yes. I think it's great. I think it's great because he's like, because he's also a complete rebel, which people don't realize. You know, I mean, don't forget he does, 72, he does, you know, give Ireland back to the Irish. You know, he's kind of like, he's, he's in this, you know, John Lennon is not the only politically militant Beatle. It's not. Yeah. John just shouts more. But that kind of halo still exists. And so, but again, there's people that are now now sort of championing Paul as this eccentric artist that should be looked at. Of course. Do you see that Paul's putting out a book of lyrics as a, a means of telling his life story? It's interesting, isn't it? Yes, I just heard, I mean, just the other day this has occurred, yeah. It is, a, it, 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 it's, it will probably be quite revealing, won't it? 
I mean, it's fascinating. It is aligned with what you said that, you know, he's an artist and it's like, Paul is actually like, look at my art. But I think he's inviting a lot of people to look into his songs too. For... Yeah, of course he is. It's quite clever, actually. <laughs> it will mean that his songs are really dissected and their greatness will be perceived, of course. My concern about Paul inviting people to read into his work is that I've heard a lot of podcasts, heard a lot of interviews, there's books that are like, okay, and Paul McCartney wrote these 50 songs to John Lennon and George Harrison and Ringo Starr, mostly John. And John wrote, How Do You Sleep? Like, I'm worried that it's going to become even more one-sided. It's funny because I hear these good things and then I get all worried about things. But I liked I liked the fact that it was a very artistic way for him. I, I- thought this was actually a rather good thing to do. He's a good Gemini communicator, basically, you know? But that doesn't mean there's not a lot of depth to him. Of course there is a lot of depth depth to him. He's he's one of the greatest artists of the the 20th century, so there would be, really. When you think of the fact that he's talking about his songs, is there any songs that you're particularly curious about? Well, I, I, you know, there's so many, but the first thing that comes to mind as you're saying that is I'd, I'd be interested to know what he had to say about Helter Skelter in light of the way it was taken up as an anthem by by Charles Manson. I mean, I would like to hear what Paul has to say about that. I'd like to hear about the songs. See, there's those songs about his mother, like Lady Madonna, uh, Let It Be, what else, there's others. Yesterday might be about that. But I'd be interested to know, he doesn't really talk about that very much, you know, his relationship with his mother. But I think that was, that was the, you know, her death was like a turning point. It was like so crucial for him and and him and John Lennon. I mean, that was one of the things that bound them together. I always found that very interesting. Yeah, you know, there's a quote from Paul where he says uh, that I was lucky that when I lost my mother, I found John. You know, obviously John isn't a maternal figure, but I just think his connection there means there would have been some kind of a bond. Not that John's a mother-like figure, but that his love went into that relationship or it filled something in him or something, yeah, yeah, you know? Of course. No, he's, in some way, he's some slightly archetypal figure in that respect as a sort of nurturing figure, isn't he? John to Paul. How do you see that? Well, I mean, even just the fact that, you know, they when they get married, that it's within kind of, you know, there is this unconscious bond there all the time. And, and it's probably, you know, they're probably swapping roles as well, you know? I mean, because Paul did basically run the Beatles, you know, he's a, see, he's therefore almost, he is the sort of father figure at those times. Yep. And I think there's a lot of swapping around of, you know, it's, it's not definitive. I think so often the story sees John as the father figure, you know, it's and Paul is the more maternal one. Oh, that's not true. I just don't, you know, because as I said, you know, it's like in the way that Paul is kind of, he's kind of running the Beatles. You know, it's Paul who has the idea for Sergeant Pepper. Mm-hmm. It's the same as he has the idea for Magical Mystery Tour. Mm-hmm. Much derided when it was shown here, but actually it's fantastic. Um, uh, and so he's kind of like, there, therefore, one would see he's the general. Yes. You know, which is a sort of male archetype, obviously. Yes. But it presumably, sh- but it shifts around, you know. I mean, that's instinctively how he thinks, that someone's got to keep the whole thing going. You know, it probably comes from his dad as well, you know, look, when, when his mum died. So he's he's accustomed to maintaining that role, even though he's kind of, he's not the one, that, everyone thinks John's the leader, but he's not. Sometimes he is. But Paul is the one who drove, who kept the whole thing going. You know, I, I mentioned that we had done a, a big breakup series and we're two women. 
And we see pulp as much more paternal. I'd agree. We think the story gets wrong how invested and loving John is. And sometimes they miss how tough and paternal Paul can be. Yeah, of course. But in the public opinion, you know, like we come to sometimes like even there's a book that came out a while ago and they were like, Paul McCartney didn't have John Lennon's ability to separate himself from his emotions and compartmentalize. And it's like, who are you talking about? That's, John non- like- that's nonsense because John, for example, like in, in relationships with women, John would was jealous reportedly of Paul's ability to kind of like have one night stands and that's it. That's what it is. You know what I mean? John would get emotionally involved with with women he was involved with. We see Paul dealing with business and Beatles issues in this way too. I'm pretty, um, they're kind of, you know, ruthless, ambitious, all that stuff. Not showbiz. But I'm pretty, uh, can be pretty forceful. If if we've got to uh, make a record, I'll actually sit down and write songs. See, I was, I was wondering which can be interpreted as being overpowering and forceful. And, and I don't think one's better than the other. I don't really care. I just think that the story gets skewed when you see John as being decisive and a general and when no. the guy's highly emotional. Stoned and doing acid and <laughs> living out in the country. Where the, living out in the country, as we know, where you know, Brian Epstein's accountant lived. That's why he That's why he moved there. Oh, you live there, I'll, move, I'll live there then. It must be why the posh and rich people live. I mean, it's just not, you know, it, and that's why Paul is in touch with the zeitgeist of what's going on culturally in London at that time in Britain. He's in the centre of London. I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there. I'm going back to his music. Okay, so you're you're interested in the, the the songs that are about his mother. I think that's really interesting too. You know, Paul was asked if he could go back in time and do one thing again or spend one day in any way. He said he would go and spend it with his mother. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And we we talk a lot about about John and John's relationship with his mother and the impact of his mother that it has on him, character wise. What do you think that Paul's mother's death, the effect that it had on him? I think it was devastating, but it also <laughs> impelled him to become who he was. It was also a springboard for who he became, unquestionably. And and can you talk about that? Well, I think he just, you know, to fill that gap, he had his guitar and his music, and I think was just focused and, you know, it, it, was, it was like he had to go somewhere within himself. Yeah. To find himself, you know, you would have been in sh- something like that happens. You're in shock for about a year. Yeah, you know, they call it grief, and it kind of gradually goes away. But it's really shock. Um, and he had to overcome that. And the, but also the the relationship with John Lennon obviously assists in this. You know, when he meets John, that's kind of like he's found he's sort of found a partner. So he's found he's found someone who he he with whom. He empathizes creatively. You know, they're kind of almost bonded together, aren't they, by the deaths of their mothers? Yes. 
You know, I mean, that's, you know, they wouldn't, probably wouldn't have known anyone else whose mums had died, you know. And, and, but it must have been overhanging John, you know. The, the, the grief must have still been there. And his mother's death was sort of more traumatic in a way than Paul's because of the way it happened. But, you know, she's knocked over by a, 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 a is he an ex-policeman or is a, he's an ex-policeman, I think. That's a terrible tragedy. It's traumatic, isn't it? I mean, for Paul, his mum dying from breast cancer also would have been traumatic, but in a way, it's more sort of you can see it, you know, in a, in a sort of in a medical way, you can understand it. Well, but the, nobody told him at the time. Like, I don't know if it would be because nobody told him anything about it, and then she was just gone, and there was no warning either. So I'm not quite sure. I think that Paul has given a lot less sympathy for his mother's death. You know, we know it's foundational, but there's so much time spent on John's mother's death, and you know. And and I've seen some psychologists, again, like there's a lot of new thinking being done that say that Paul's mother dying when he's 14 is actually a little bit different than John's mother dying when he was 17 in that Paul's still... 17, not 16. Yeah, yeah, 17. And I mean, John has his own family issues. Paul's mother died at such a critical time, that, that transitional time. You're right, actually, because 14 is a more complex age probably than 17. You, by the time you're 17, you've grown up a little bit. A little bit, you know, and we know that he had that complicated relationship with his mother. So I don't mean to underplay the, the tragedy of that situation. You know, this is the problem is that we're always trying to refocus on Paul too, because again, like in Lewison's book, all the time he spends on Julia is triple the time that he spends on Paul's mom. And it's like, why? His mom and his situation deserves time too. Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs of every head he's had the pleasure to know. Okay, so I'm going to take us back to the beginning though, because I love the fact that you do create a profile of Paul that is as a as a developed person outside of the Beatles. You, you go into Jim's background and talk about the fact that, you know, his family was working class, but music was in Jim's family and, and Jim was very much self-taught, you know, bought himself a piano and music was always a part of their family, which is great because it sort of gives the background that Paul's coming from. Paul kind of plays down Jim's, like he'll say, oh, my father was in a band. But in your book you trace the fact that he was the leader of a band for you know for a good time and it was a big part of his life um okay so you talk about him being the leader of a band the jim max jazz band and him him being a a sort of a man about town before he settled in you also talk about him at work and the fact that he was promoted to cotton salesman like he was from this working class family and he worked hard as a young young guy and got promoted to being the sales salesman you said that it gave him a sense of self-worth that this new position brought and he had an enhanced status in this role and this has always confused me as paul is always considered working class and yet both of his parents you know his mom's a nurse and his dad's a salesman they're not working class they're not not really. That's interesting to me because it just appears to me that they maybe were lacking in money, but they weren't necessarily working in jobs that were working class. Yeah, precisely. Which actually, between Paul going to a, a prestigious school and having professional parents, it does actually define him in a slightly different way, I would think. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I mean, you know, his his dad, his dad's background was sort of working class, but you know, but but he's you know he's pulled himself up by his bootstraps, so he's no longer, you know, neither of them are really working class. They sort of, they would be called as they were would be in those days lower middle class, I think. Right. Well, then you know why why is Paul always ribbing John for being lower middle class if his family was as well? Who knows? <laughs> okay. You know, their house, I mean, was on a council estate. Yeah. John's was definitely not on a, you know, Menlove Avenue is not a council estate. You know, it's sort of, it's not posh, but it's, it's not not even lower middle class. It's middle class. Okay. This whole, whole idea of John being the working class hero is just not true. <laughs> right. Okay, so then, and then you trace his mother that she left home early. She became a nurse and became in charge of a maternity ward. You know, she seems to have been quite a hardworking, upwardly yeah. mobile, driven woman as well. Yeah, they're both hardworking. They both seem to have this shared view that, you know, you you got to make the most of what you've got and work really hard. Yeah, which obviously Paul most from them. <laughs> it's something that in some ways is almost seen as a as a negative with him that he tries too hard. I think it just comes to him naturally. This yeah. idea that he's up, not upwardly mobile, but this idea that he al- always wants to improve and progress and this kind of thing, which both of his parents had, I think was just like a little bit... Trying too yeah, hard. Yeah, trying too hard. I never had that impression. I never had that impression no. at all. It's easy. You know, I mean, I just think he, you know, because also don't forget, you know, whether he's working class or not, you know. I mean, like in, in the 60s, you know, the kind of the, the tradition of the, you know, the angry young man, particularly northern young man who comes to London, does well. That's sort of part of the narrative of the culture at that yeah. time. I mean, the Beatles are partially responsible for this, but it's not entirely the case because there's all those sort of books like Seen as Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, for example. They were all sort of northern set books, you know, and, and it was almost like a sort of Dick Whittington story, really, in a way. You know, that they come, then they come to London and, you know, do good and become the mayor of London. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. yeah. That was part. That was a theme of the of the age, you know. And it was the Beatles were quite responsible for kind of really imbuing it into the culture, but it was already happening before then. And I think that's something that Paul loves too, because he always talks about loving Dickens, you know. Yeah. So this kind of heroic, like it, making something of yourself, it, it definitely is something that appeals to him. I think. Yeah, but I think also it comes quite naturally to you know. I mean, what's interesting is, you know, for example, the relationship with Jane Asher. You know, they're living in the centre of London. I mean, very centre of London. Posh. Very posh. Uh, And actually, you know, know, the Academy Cinema, where they're showing all the sort of latest, you know, avant-garde films from Europe, around the corner, you know. uh, But John, you know, goes off to live in Surrey on a, you know, on a stockbroker's estate, really. So, therefore, you feel instinctively Paul was more in touch with the zeitgeist than John. Yeah, and and that's an example of, and you address this in your book, that some people spun that relationship, and then the relationship with the Ashers is him trying to move up in society. But, you know, from my perspective, it's like he's such an intelligent, creative guy. Why, Why wouldn't this family be attractive and exciting to him? Exactly. And obviously... You know, I mean, this was quite revolutionary in those days, you know. 
they're kind of liberal enough to accept that he's going to come and live in their house, you know, and sleeping with their daughter. Yeah. In those days, you know, they would have had to be sort of quite strikingly bohemian in their house. That was that was quite striking. What do you? What do you, I didn't mean to j- jump into this, but since we're talking about Jane, what do you, what do you make of the Jane Paul relationship? Paul was never faithful to her, but they kind of seemed they sort of seemed one of those I you know ideal couples really at the time, didn't they? Well, that's what people say, you know. In 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 the book, you have some comments from people that just said that they were extremely complimentary and both lovely. Yeah. They sort of seemed to fit. I mean, I was quite upset. I remember when they broke up. You were? Yeah, I was upset when they what? broke up because they seemed like an ideal kind of couple. I didn't know that, you know, that Paul was running around with loads of other girls. Though, <laughs> and uh, she's not somebody who would be putting up. I guess she did to a certain extent, but... Um... To an extent, but she eventually, you know, as we know, she turns up in Cavendish Avenue, the house in the, that he bought in. St. John's Wood and finds another girl there, and that's it, basically. Yeah, like once it was right in front of her face. Yeah, yeah it's unfortunate because even, even like Hunter Davies, he's very positive about Jane and Paul, and he spent time with them. And, yeah. you know, some of the accounts of them being in, in India is that they are the most affectionate, close couple of the, the couples in India. And so it's interesting. Yeah. And that's 1968, like right before they broke up. Their breakup is never given any kind of real attention. Like maybe Paul went through a bad period after they broke up. Maybe that's when he was doing coke. Well, during that time, yeah. That was the period. Well, he probably thought he'd screwed up as well, you know? He'd lost her. Yeah. Through basically shaking her out. So. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did lose her. I mean, he did. I mean, he'd lost her through that. You know, and it's a familiar rock and roll story, of course. But I mean, I mean, she's like a very high-end girl. She had a career of her own. Yeah, she was a name in her own right, even though she was very young. Yeah, and then she, and then she didn't come back to him. I think it would have impacted him too because he was very close to the family. Yes, of course, absolutely. It was it sort of it was kind of his family home. It had been his family home. Ever since he moved to London until he got the place in St. John's Wood. The St. John's Wood place is interesting in that, you know, you kind of have this image of Paul being meticulous and perfectionist, and yet it sort of shows the more bohemian side of Paul. <laughs> exactly. But also, Paul also did have what in England we call a shag pad. He did have an apartment in the centre of London that Jane knew nothing about where he used to take girls. It's probably quite difficult when all these women are thrusting themselves at you. <laughs> I would imagine. It's quite realistic. You know? But you know what? I think they must have had very strong feelings for each other that they stuck together. They seem to fit straight away as a couple. Yeah. I mean, I like them as a couple. I wish we knew a little bit more about them as a couple because there's a, um, a missing piece in Paul's life in the whole Beatles story because we've heard from all the other women. They give a lot of good insight on, you know, George or John. We hear from Cynthia or Patty or even Maureen's talk. And we don't have that from Jane. And so I think that we're missing some critical insight into Paula from that period. Did Miles have anything to say about that? About Jane? He just confirmed that he was like, yeah, they, they really did love each other. And they really were quite a close and loving couple. Okay, so going back to his childhood, you described Jim 
in really glowing terms, and almost everyone seems to do that. They talk about him being charming and generous and affectionate and warm and gentlemanly. Was it the, the case where when you interviewed people were just really positive about him? Yes, no one has a bad word to say about him. Yeah. One thing that I wondered was gambling. Could it potentially be that gambling was a bigger deal for Jim than we know? He was supposed to have liked a flutter, as they <laughs> yes. say. And I suppose he also got himself into a bit of financial trouble at one point. Right. I mean, you trace that to when he's younger and he kind of learned from it. But I just always wonder why Paul seems to need money more than the others. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know if you mean, did he spend all his money gambling? Well, yes. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But there, there is, was a suggestion that, um, yeah, the earlier in life, certainly. And but it's probable that you know they wouldn't have earned much money, yeah. and probably Paul was just very conscious of that. One of the things that Miles said actually was, "I was like, oh yeah, I know Paul is supposedly really cheap," and he said he wasn't in the sixties. He was very generous with us in the sixties. He said, "I think he thought he was being t- taken advantage of," but it seems like he had pressures on him when he was young that John didn't. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's possible. They, they wouldn't have earned much money. Uh, the house was not theirs. It was a council house. You know, there would be the rent to pay every, every, you know, every week. Yeah. But that was kind of what life was like for a lot of people in those days. Yeah. But it would have attuned him to the, maybe the need to have it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not even saying Paul was tight, by the way. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is you spend a lot of time on his education and you make the point that he was lucky both in terms of his original, the original school that he went to. He started in a good school and did, yeah. did well, was always kind of like a noticeably good student, you know, stood out. He was one of four boys uh, of the 90 boys who sat for the 11 plus test to be awarded a place at the Liverpool Institute. Yeah, prestigious school, you know. It's just one of the great northern grammar schools, really. And, you know, there was this kind of tradition of that. Manchester Grammar School was 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 one. The school that I went to, actually, which was like, which wasn't far from there, was also one, you know, found, they were, oh, mine was like founded 1605 by King James, you know, it's King James, you know, those, but they were, they were kind of good liberal educations. And the, the teachers tended to be of high quality. They're sort of intellectuals. Yep. And it would have stood him in good stead. Yeah, and it seems to have really impacted him too. Yeah. It would have been prestigious. You know, going to the INI, the Liverpool Institute, the INI, that would have, would have been a mark of a certain status in Liverpool. And let's not forget George went there yes. as well. Yes, that's always uh, interesting to me, the fact that George went there and nobody really talks about George's academic ability. No, I think George wasn't as you know, didn't do as well at school. But the fact that George got to that school was significant. Yeah, and Mike McCartney too. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. just shows that they all had they're, they're bright boys. Yes. yes. George just had no interest in applying it, I guess. Did a lot of working class boys go to that school or would that have been unusual that they were there? It wouldn't have been that unusual. But you know, it'd be hard. But it it would have been more middle class. Do you think that would have been an insecurity for him? I don't think so, really. I think Paul was fairly self-assured. 
Yeah, and you say that when he got there, he was consistently voted head boy. Um, yeah, so he yeah. he did quite well there. Um, Considering he didn't seem to do that much work. <laughs> I mean, in later, you know, in, in, in the last two or three years, yes. which is when you when you really do need to be working very hard if you're going to go to university or whatever. You know, he obviously, you know, that's when he'd be going to the car to have his lunch at lunchtime with 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 John in the in the art school, which was next door, and with George as well sometimes. Yeah, I, mean, I always find that interesting that you know Paul had all this ability, and clearly it was really recognized within the school. But you know, he didn't apply it. You you make the point that he was ambitious, but just not really academically. I'm sure it was something he felt like he was supposed to be doing. Yeah, but he'd rather be going and playing guitar. I mean, he would, he would skive off afternoons, yes. you know, and go. He'd go to either his parents' place or to or to um, or his father's place, as it was then, or to you know John's aunt's place at Medal of Avenue, and they just begin to write songs. It always surprises me that there's this idea like, well, Paul would have been a teacher if he hadn't met John, or you know. But I always think I don't know about that. You know, it, it's like no, he had that drive to be a musician. Yes. Well, I tried to summarize some of the themes that came out of your book. Um, the first one, obviously, is, you know, one of his defining characteristics is the fact that he was wildly charming, you know. Yeah, which he probably got from his dad. Yeah, who was also wildly charming, apparently. Yeah. And cheerful, boisterous, eminently likable. Yeah, not, not sort of moody and <laughs> difficult. <laughs> you know, that's part of the joy of the Beatles. Yes, of course. Okay, so yeah, a lot of people commented on the fact that he was always making people laugh, ready with quips. Here's an example. He was always respected by the other boys. He was the person always ready with a witty comment. I mean, that was kind of that, because that was one of the things about them, the Beatles, when they first emerged, that this was kind of like suddenly there was this new wave of humor called satire. Yeah. And the Beatles fitted into that, you know? Yeah. They were kind of very ir irreverent. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, they were just funny, man. They were yes, funny. Yeah. So that, that came up a lot. Peter Sisson said, Paul stood out as a bright lad, but a cheeky lad. It was much more than just the proverbial Liverpudlian wit, though. I mean, George Harrison had the wit, but not the brain. But intellectually, Paul was in a completely different world. He was a phenomenally bright lad and still is. Just yeah. so hurt and shocked. An important newsreader. That's right. Well, and he's he has some really positive things to say. I mean, I, I'll just write off what he said about George because George did not try in any way, I think, at school. George could be funny too. I remember, you know, when he was interviewed, someone asked him a stupid question. Do you eat anything special to keep those hairstyles? And George says, bales of straw. <laughs> and George is very funny. They were all very funny. That was part of the thing about the Beatles. Yeah. Oh, and you know, you see this with Paul a lot, even in his post-Beatles work, like he's very playful. Like he actually, if you look at his 70s work, there's a lot of playfulness and humor in his songwriting. Yeah. There's an intellectual wit in there as well. Yeah. There's a lot more cleverness than he's necessarily given credit for. So it, it, the, Peter Sisson says, you know, at the, the bottom of this comment, he says, but intellectually, Paul was in a completely different world. He was a phenomenally bright lad and still is. So alert and sharp. And that's another theme that came out a lot. People talked a lot about how incredibly smart he was, how sharp he was. And I think that that is not necessarily like John. And again, I'm, I'm not comparing them. I'm just trying to elevate some of the ideas that have been lost in that John's brilliant. And John's such 
John's a great communicator. Like he loves to talk to journalists and he's really great at sound bites and he's very, very charismatic. But Paul's intelligence is somehow gets a little bit lost in that. And there was a lot of quotes about that, about how smart he was. Because John's sort of thought of as, oh, the genius intellectual. Yes. Versus Paul, who's kind of like the, uh, you know, the, um, what is it? The, 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 just the craftsman. But it's not true at all. That's just completely misunderstanding the whole thing. Yeah, I hate that because it's like, oh, it's lucky that Paul was a craftsman who could write these songs that everybody knows. Exactly. And yeah, in fact, you know, Paul is a complex man, but he's also not complex. You know, I mean, his ability to kind of like, I mean, that's what he he was always seen as like, oh, you know, the the front man, the PR man of the group. But that's because it came naturally to him. It was easy. Yes, in that he was charming and likable. And, and he always talks about the fact that he just, his approach to life is to be nice and friendly to people. Yeah, make life easy. But yeah. I think that, you know, John is about a hundred times better a PR person. And Yoko is about a hundred times better than John, just in terms of like crafting a story and sticking to a message and that kind of thing. Like Paul is... That's true. That's true. That's true. To me, Paul is old school PR, like nice to everyone. We'll give people time and talk to them. Thumbs yeah, up. exactly. Whereas John and Yoko are like new school PR where they understand that there's got to be a message underneath it. The backstory, yeah. I mean, I think one of the greatest tricks they pulled was, you know, John in Lennon Remember says that Paul is the world's greatest PR guy. And it's like, mm, that'd be you, John. But um, now everybody thinks Paul. It may be old school PR that Paul is good at. But I just always think, well, then what happened in the breakup of the Beatles? Because he really missed the boat for three years there where he just didn't talk. Jack Sweeney says, um, it is no exaggeration that Paul is said to have been held in very high regard at the Institute. He was. His sheer charm ensured that. You might have thought that the charm was a self-defense mechanism, but it wasn't. It was absolutely natural, quite extraordinary and quite irresistible. Paul is a very complex person. People feel that it was John who was the complex Beatle. But in the first place, Paul had this extraordinary dualism. At any given moment, he could be so easygoing and so casual. Yet there was also this toughness. He would hold the class entranced. He was a born leader, so gregarious, so popular. And he had this extraordinary faith in his own star. He says, I think this is something that comes from his sheer intelligence, for he was very, very bright. And this idea that he was just nice, he was very complex. Yes, he could be nice, but he was also the most astute of them all, the toughest and the shrewdest right from the start. The toughest is the significant phrase, isn't it? Yes, and can you speak to that? Because I think that's something that gets lost, because Paul's all soft and nice these days, you know? Well, I think he was thought of as that as well during the Beatles, you know. But he's, he's, he's unbelievably tough. You just don't realize that. John actually was the one that said that Paul was incredibly smart. And then he was the one that was also like, people think I'm the tough one, but Paul's the tough one. Where do you think that comes from? Do you have any sense of that? I think there is some of it will go back to the mum passing away, you know, that you have to boost yourself in some way. You know, tragedy tragedy can you know bring bring stuff out in you can't you know he must have known to survive he had to be tough it's just, it's simple and it would have come from his dad as well i think yeah probably from the mum too you know yeah. before she passed away because she slightly ran things 
And there was that that remark he made about, you know, when she passed away, so oh, what are we going to do without her money? Which I don't think was about money at all. I think it's that's, you know, it's like that one of those classic wrong things that you say that gets misinterpreted yeah. at such time. You know, uh, I mean, similarly to, you know, when John was shot, and he says, oh, it's, you know, his his comment was, oh, it's a drag, isn't it? He wasn't saying. I mean, he's just. He he's just working in the field of colossal understatement when he says that. He's saying he's not just saying oh it's a drag. He's saying it's appalling. Yes, that was so unfortunate. He he seems to always say the wrong thing when he's shocked and doesn't want to fall apart. I assume. Yeah, I mean, don't forget he and he doesn't go to funerals. Remember that. I do. And what does that say to you? I I, I don't know because there are people like that. I know people like that. I think it's probably because he thinks it's, you know, because the pain is so great, he can't deal with it. I think so, too. So yeah. that's what I'm trying to understand. Is the toughness just his shell? Is it an innate t- toughness or is it a shell that he's just very, very sensitive inside and has a shell? I think he's very sensitive inside, but has also had to learn how to be, you know, to he's just had to learn how to do it, basically. You know, he knows that you have to be that, otherwise they've got you. So. Yeah. What they're doing is revolutionary, you know. You know, the group singing their own songs. No one else is doing this. You know, you've got to have some self-belief to do this, to pull this off. So you need to be strong. And he would have learned, he would have learned to be strong. Again, Hamburg would have helped. But even when we look at the breakup of the Beatles, he's actually tougher than you would think. Like in, in his dealings with the Beatles, I was sort of surprised when I actually looked at what he said versus the editorializing around what he said. And right. he's a little bit, he doesn't give that much away, even to the Beatles. No, he plays his cards close to his chest. I mean, that's another part of the complexity of Paul, isn't it? Very open, you know, the, the front man, the PR man. But actually, he's playing his cards really close to his chest as well. Right. And I think that probably drove John crazy. Because John, when we, when we looked at some of the interviews from him, even like the behind the scenes, He's really communicating his feelings of feeling insecure and feeling like he's, you know, he's very clear about his feelings. And Paul was not particularly articulate or open about what he was feeling. He doesn't really express them, yeah. Okay, so there is this idea of born leader. So, again, there's two ideas in here. That There's this idea that he was quite the leader at school. A number of people mentioned that, you know that he was gregarious, popular, just a leader. He was responsible for organizing the class. But, you know, this is the point that we've made talking about the Beatles, that the leadership was really shared between John and Paul, and it was fluid, you know, and because right now John is given a lot of credit for it, but Paul had these skills too. Well, I mean, but I also maintain that all along it's Paul driving the whole project along. Is that what you would want people to know? I think so. I think that's important. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Paul was doing it. I mean, John appears to be, but he's not really. You can sort of see through, like, the fact that Paul's like, okay, yeah, you can you can be the front person, the front leader, and meanwhile, we'll do what I want us to do. But sometimes that is positioned as he was just the one who did 
Like I, I talked to a guy who wrote about the Beatles and he was like, well, he was the container for John's. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't buy that. I think they were both genius. Not at all. Yeah, they were. But that's what Paul's drive is sometimes positioned as. Like he did all the practical stuff so that John could just be the artist. Yeah, no, it's nonsense. Well, how would you define it more then? No, they're both, they're both geniuses, yeah. you know, and in a way, the fact that Paul can also drive the, the the Beatles along possibly means he's a bit more of a genius than John, actually. Or else would have actualized it, you know, without John, perhaps more than, than John would have. Yeah. 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 Okay. So there's a couple of other things. This idea that he is helpful and hardworking came out, not necessarily, as you said, in his schoolwork. He seems to have given that the minimum to get by. Yeah. But this idea that he's hardworking, like, I find that interesting in that he was so charming and such a, you know, natural musician that some people would have just coasted on the charm and the talent. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to have done. Maybe that's, you know, his working class roots or his mom and dad telling him he has to work hard. Or his, in, or his own innate drive that tells him that. Right. A bit of each. It would have been a bit of each. Wouldn't yes, it? I guess so. But it's just interesting. I was like, I like the fact that he, like he delivers too. Yeah. You talk about Paul at the scout camp, right around the time when he met John. You say around the campfire, Paul would entertain the rest of the scouts with his guitar. He entertained us with his guitar, his singing, and his very ready wit. And I think some of the songs he sang were of his own making. At such a young age, he displayed no qualms about entertaining the whole camp, 30 or 40 boys. And that is Arthur Evans, one of his teachers. I think that that's significant because he was young and he wasn't in the band and already he's performing. Yeah. Well, that you imagine that comes from his dad, don't you? I would think so. But I think it's also significant that he would have been a performer. I'm not saying that he would have been successful, but he would have probably driven himself to be a performer in some way or the other. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But it takes a bit of nerve. It takes a bit of nerve at that age to become, you know, playing your guitar for 30 or 40 people. It does. And there seems to be like it was just... He just did it because he liked it, you know? Yeah. And Arthur Evans, you know, makes the point that um, at, at such a young age, he displayed no qualms about entertaining the whole camp and that he was potentially yeah. playing his own song. So, and that's also an early time, like the fact that he was just driven to write his own songs kind of naturally yes. says something about him too, don't you think? Of course. And, and, and don't forget that most rock and rollers, both English and American, you know, apart from Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran, probably someone I'm missing out, but they didn't write their own songs. So what they they what that was the whole point about the, one of the whole points about the Beatles, they wrote their own material. It's wow, great. great, you know. Most people, do, you know, the great English, you know, Billy Fury or whoever, they weren't writing their own songs, you know. So what they were doing was quite, you know, it's it's kind of interesting why they thought they could do that. Well, and I do find that interesting. Like, it seems like if he was writing a song at 14 or 13 or whatever it was, it must have been partly just innate coming out of him. I mean, I think, you know, they all love Buddy Holly and, and Paul particularly because um, didn't he buy the... Buddy yeah. Holly's catalogue, yeah. he did. Uh, the, you know, a lot of English people loved Buddy Holly, and Buddy Holly, it was known, wrote his own material. So that would have been, a, that certainly would have been an, an, an influence. Maybe it's also the fact that his dad just kind of made up music too, that it was... Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Partly coming out. That was, you know, the, the paternal influence would have been strong. He had an independent streak. Um, Iris Caldwell said that 
Uh, Paul in particular never felt if he liked something that he should pretend he didn't. He wouldn't say he liked something if he didn't or put some sort of music down just because it wasn't what it was supposed to be or it was supposed to be in at the time. And I think that that is um, important to Paul, too, because he, you know, he's made fun of for some of the quote unquote granny music or the influences that he put in. But that's part of what makes the Beatles interesting. Yeah, of course. It's that, it's that kind of musical appeal. Yeah, there's a, sort of a, like a willingness to be uncool. But, but that takes a fair amount of courage to be like, you know what, I, I like this song that nobody else does and I'm going to play no, no, exactly, exactly. You're, you're right, and and and, um, and 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 John dismisses his Paul's granny music, but that's what people like. Uh, Jack Sweeney calls him a conformist re- rebel. There's this tension in him, not in the way that John was rebellious against the establishment. This seems to be the tension that I think that Paul is rebellious against something. I I don't know, being told what to do or something. I mean, he would be one of the things he would be rebelling against would be what they wanted to, you know, what the, despite the, the Institute being this sort of liberal sort of semi-bastion, uh, uh, at the same time, they were trying to turn you into, you know, pre-World War II people. That's why I, I get a little bit annoyed when they just talk about, you know, he would have been a teacher if he hadn't, you know, been in the Beatles. It's like, well, you've got one of the most famous musicians in the world. You don't think he would have found a way to be a musician, first of all. But on top of that, that's probably the only job he knew he could get. Like, it's not like he was driven to be a teacher. It's just like, you know, I think he probably had like three choices at that time. Well, he's an artist. That's the point, really. That's the whole point, isn't it? It's not just he's a musician. He's an artist. And and he he looks at things with an artist's vision. Well, that's it. Let's talk about that for a second, because it seems to me that for a long time, you know, Paul went to the Institute, but John went to the art college and Stu went to the art college. And he seems to have had a bit of a chip on his shoulder because he didn't. And yet he was so obviously an artist. I know. I know. Well, you have to understand, you know, that the people at the art school were always thought of as the cool kids. Right. They always, you know, I, I remember that, you know, the people, they were it's a bit almost, have almost a mystical godlike status about them just because they went to art school. You couldn't figure out what they did at art school. <laughs> so he probably did feel that a bit, yes. But he probably could have gone to art school if he hadn't been good yeah. at school. Yeah, well, he could have done it any, you know, by being good at school, he could have gone to art school as well. Yeah. Yeah. He got A-level. Didn't he get A-level art? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of like, which was more than John did. John scraped, John only did O-level and scraped into art school. Obviously, they saw his talent, you know. But, um, I mean, the art schools were the kind of last refuge of the kind of the unwashed, really. That must also have worked with John a little bit. What's that? That Paul got an A-level art, basically. I mean, I've seen some of his artwork from the early days, and it's very good, actually. It's, you know, and, you know, the thing is, is that, like, even throughout the Beatles, he was so instrumental in terms of designing the covers or having input into art. Yes, yes. And I think that's, again, that's a bit of the depositioning of Paul because, you know, in the breakup, he was considered to be more establishment, less of the artist. You know, John and Yoko got the, sort of artist mantle because they, yeah 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 because yeah, they smack yeah, yeah exactly the smack the anti and establishment and paul unfortunately got saddled with a businessman and that you know he just wants the fame and no, it's not true it's not true at all yeah can you speak to that 
Well, I just think it's incorrect to see that Paul was kind of like the, you know, although he drove the Beatles along, he drove it in a way that Picasso would have driven his own art, you know, in his own career. It's more more on, on you know, it's like, a, well, someone's got to do this, you know, if we're going to get really get this going. I mean, and, and you know, and, I, and, and, and then I would use it to, you know, use an example like Picasso because I think it's absolutely apt, you know, because the, we are talking about some of the greatest artists of the 20th century in whatever field they happen to be, you know, fulfilling themselves. You know, Paul actually occasionally references Picasso. And in terms of, he talked about it, I think in terms of Dylan's career, but I think he's talking about himself too. He said, look at Picasso's of as a whole. It wasn't all his famous stuff. There was dips and peaks and sometimes he's, progressing to get to new, like you have failures that get you to the next thing. That's true. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. You know, as somebody who has really learned about Paul's work in the past 20 years, it's easier for me to be able to see that as, you know, like probably at the time it was seen as like big failures or mistakes in terms of albums that came out, but it's like, oh, I can see what he was doing. And that showed up. In the next yes. They're traditional works, you know, they're trying that you're moving to another phase. I mean, it's the same with like Neil Young, for example, who I like very Thank much you. indeed. But not all his records are great, and and when he comes out with a record that isn't so great, or in the past yeah. anyway, uh, but I would realise, oh no, that's because that's a transition to a next phase. That's what he's doing with the next record. Okay, I see what's going on here. Yeah. So yeah, exactly, exactly. But this idea of Paul being an artist, he he did some like visualizations of how he sees music, and it's very much like. A painting, you know, very uh-huh. interesting. And of course, he it was very close to Robert Fraser, which in the sixties, who was you know the art. Well, that whole bunch, yeah, like, and John Dunbar and all those people, yeah, exactly. And John Fraser, he he persuaded him to buy a Magritte, didn't he? The first he time. did, and you know, he said in many years from now, he said some pretty incredible things about Robert, about the fact that he. I wish we knew more about that relationship because. He says that he was outside of the Beatles, one one of the biggest influences of his life, and you right. kind of wonder, like, wow, that's interesting that he would say that. I wish we knew more about their friendship. I know because it's interesting because you also hear Robert Fraser in 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 the context of the Rolling Stones, and you just think in a way, oh, he was just some sort of dec- decadent druggie, yeah. but he was clearly. Yes, you know, I just wonder if he let Paul be an artist or somehow touch that part of him that maybe he wasn't allowed to in the confines of the Beatles or in his role of Beatle Paul. Yeah, well, I think no, but, but uh, this is because the relationship with Robert Frazier is also during that period, you know, that mid-60s period in London. And, um, and, and it's all part of Paul's broadening out, isn't it? You know, I mean, that's when he, you know, fine, you know, he's like, but, but, but you see, because Paul would be quite happy to muck in. Like, we you know, when Miles and, and John Dunbar opened the Indica Gallery in Southampton Road, Paul's kind of down there painting the walls yeah. the days before its opening. You know, so he's no, no prima donna whatsoever. He's quite happy just to get on with it. And that's one of, one, one of the very good things about Paul, he just wants to get on with it. Yeah, that's the point I was trying to make with the hard working is I like the fact that he actually will put in the work and, and is not the prima donna. Yeah, 
Exactly. And 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 was like was actually willing to explore that scene and just like the rest of them, he maybe internalized a different process quite differently in that it seems to just he picked it up and sort of spat it back out again in a good way. You know, it came out in their art. Yeah. Although less less obviously than John did. Like I think that like when I think of a day in the life, you know, you see some of the influences of the stuff that he was doing. But he turns it around in a different way. Well, he has a more matter-of-fact approach to it, you know, uh, and he's not really precious about it. it. You know, as I just said, it's just like, oh, let's just get on with it. Well, that's an interesting way to define it is that he's not precious about it. I think that that's the world that he works in is music and art. And, you know, like you said, it's a bit of like, okay, I learned this. Let's get on with it. Use it onwards, you know, versus yeah. he does not intellectualize things and i think that's actually something <laughs> that hurts him i always hear people talk about like well he said this about his song it'll be something really basic because he doesn't want to talk about his music but a lot of people musicians artists are good at talking about their art and i think that that in some ways elevates elevates how their art is positioned Sure, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I know. I agree with you. I agree with you because they're because they're, they're also being the PR people as well. They are, and that's what I mean about Paul's not really that great. He's friendly and nice and charming. You're right. He's not very good at. There's a slight. Is it almost an insecurity, or is it a modesty, or something else altogether? Because he doesn't really. He, exactly. He doesn't really break down subtleties and complexities of what he's doing. Yeah, like it's almost an unwillingness. To look at it, it's a good question whether there is an insecurity and he just keeps moving. I don't think it's an insecurity. I really don't. I think it's just like, you know, well, that was that. Let's get on with it, you know. Let's do the next thing now. He just seems to like to produce and move onward, I think. But you do think with all that weed smoking, he would have had his moments of <laughs> introspection. Okay, but you talk about John and, and Paul meeting. And I loved the fact that you said um, in Paul, he immediately detected somebody who understood that there is kind of like a recognition between the two. There's some kind of intuition that this person gets me or we share the same passion or something that that was just like a bonding thing immediately. Yeah. I like that. And I think that that sometimes is underplayed how, how much they bonded, how close they were in the early days. Yeah. Well, they, they I mean, John certainly would have recognized that aspect of himself with him. Well, I'm sure it's mutual. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's mutual. Although, don't forget that, that John is a little bit older. Well, I know, and that does make a difference at that age. That age, it does, you know. John was cool and older, and John John is a magnetic personality, you know, and yeah. and yeah. extremely creative too. So I don't ever want to suggest that I don't think that John is a giant. No, no, no of course, but also. I mean, John can be difficult. You know, John can get into fights. Yep. I mean, he will beat up Bob Wooler, you know, the cavern disc jockey early on. I mean, he will get he will get drunk and get out of control and be a bit nasty. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing to me about John and Paul is that even though Paul would have looked, I, I agree, Paul would have looked up to John, John seems to have been, like, you make the point that John might have been slightly insecure too because he knew how good Paul was. And I think that's important. Mm. But it's often good to work with someone like that, yes. isn't it? Yes. It drives you on well, a bit. Well, it did. And, you know, there are comments from, you know, from John's friends at the time who said that John started to pay more attention, that he would dress up when he saw Paul, that, you know, he 
was very pleased that he had somebody who could teach him too. And so that's, I think, really important to their foundational story too, is that, yeah, there's a bit of the dynamic because Paul's younger, but he had more skill than John had too, you know? Paul also has more social skills, I think, than John. John's cool on stage and Paul's incredibly joyful, you know, so... Who do you think is the better looking as a woman? Who's better? Who, which one do you say is oh, the better looking? Well, I, what do you think as a man? John has that kind of class. You know, he's like John has a lot of character in his face, doesn't he? You know, and he and you know he's he almost looks. You know, he could be as kind of character actor as a, as opposed to a lead actor. You know, uh, he could have been one of those characters you'd see in a kind of a, a, a Peckinpah film. Uh, but Paul actually could have been the movie star. A lot of women loved Paul. About yourself, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, there's that, but there's also um, the others would have been aware of that. Yeah, but I also felt that I, I felt he didn't abuse that. He wasn't an egomaniac. It's almost like, oh, I'm clear. okay, I can take that one off. There. Okay, that's all right. I don't have to worry about that. But it would obviously, obviously, it would incline towards the, you know, I, I, I never got the impression Paul was an egomaniac. I thought he was quite evolved. John would go would be the one who who would sort of first reveal, oh, it was like, you know, the Beatles going on the road was like uh you know, it's like Roman orgies, blah, yeah. blah blah. But we'd never heard that before, and that was slightly surprising to hear, I remember. But but in a way, John's need to talk say that almost suggests he wasn't totally comfortable with it. He wasn't totally his world, you know? Yeah. That that point that Paul makes to you in the 86 interview is he says that he never felt the need to announce these things and to share, you know, his interest in the avant-garde or his interest in, you know, charity or what he was giving to, whereas it's just something John would do. He just shared more, you know? Yeah, but as I said, John was adept at art speech. Yes. And I think, you know, the Liverpool Art School, they teach you that stuff because they know you're going to need to be able to do that. So also... Being able to talk about it in that way is also sort of turning it into a commodity. You know, you've, you're having an opening, you know, your paintings as an exhibition. You've got to have a wrap down for every painting. Yep. You know, you'll be told you'll be told that. Well, but didn't he have to do that for his albums? Yeah, we did, but you know, but he wasn't very good at it. <laughs> yes, no, he wasn't. And and I do think that John probably would have learned from Yoko too, because she was good at it. Yeah, yeah, of course. No, absolutely. Uh, no question. Well, had some interesting quotes here. She said that Paul's dad was leaning on him, so Paul had to prove that he was strong, um, yeah. which is an interesting idea because you always get the sense that Paul's dad was the rock. Yeah. She said, I never heard him say a bad word about anyone. I know how much he likes Stu, which again is an interesting idea because random right now, it's the belief that Paul hated Stu. Yeah, no, no, no. I think it's all nonsense. Do you? Yeah. Why is it? Why has it been made up to be that now? This kind of makes the narrative easier, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, the whole Stu thing, I'm never sure about, you know. And I and I I used to know Pauline Suckler, but I never really talked to her about it, you know. Um, uh, you know, did John really kick Stuart in the head in a drunken fight and possibly bring on his, you know, his tumor or you know whatever yeah, it was? I, I don't know. There's a lot of 
I'm never totally happy about. I agree. I wish we knew more. If you look, this was the confusing thing to me. If you look at um, Hunter Davies' book, and they're they're discussing uh, Stu, you know, they they all say they feel badly. They made fun of him when he was in the band. John says, "Yes, I was very close to him. I, you know, told him everything." So clearly, John was always close to him. But there was a difference with Stu for me, looking at the relationships, in that John was not competitive with Stu. Yeah. Well, that makes a big difference, you know, in terms of. His relationship with Stu versus his relationship with Paul. Yeah. Well, they were art school friends, weren't they, you know? And he was on a different trip, Yeah, but that makes it easier for John to just be, like, friends with Stu. They were also the same age, too, which makes sense. Exactly, and I think that slight age difference does mean something. You know, Stu's paintings were fantastic. Yes, they're amazing. She says here, but what Paul had got was ambition, and he wouldn't have approved of Stuart going off with a girl and troubling their potential, being the Beatles who wants to settle down with Astrid when there is a world to conquer. And so, you know, there's also the professional side of it. Like, he wants the Beatles to progress. Yeah, that's why they just whole point out of thoughts. Yeah. She says, I don't know of Paul ever stepping on anyone. The only person he was ruthless with was himself, even in the Pete Best situation. It was because Ringo was a better drummer. Uh, he was terribly distressed by Stu's death. It was uh, another ending of the life of someone near in spirit to him. And then she said that the difference between Paul and my brother was total dedication, which all the Beatles had. And then she said, and Paul and John were very talented boys. And Paul was so determined with a total belief in himself to an extent that someone would think he was self-centered and in love with himself, but he wasn't. It was just that he wasn't ordinary and he knew that he wasn't. I think that's interesting because you hear a lot of Paul saying, and, and I would love your perspective on this, that you hear a lot of him just saying, I'm just a guy. I'm just a normal guy. And yet there's this other side that knows he's not ordinary and knows that he is good. But that's kind of, wouldn't you think that that's a, a testament to his good character, actually, that, he, that he's, he's aware. He knows how good he is. But on the other hand, he's not totally certain of it because there's always that, at that age, there's always that niggling doubt. And the fact that he allows a certain amount of perspective onto this, and clearly he has done, is part is what's given him the sustaining power and not being an egomaniac. Yeah. I mean, he probably was an egomaniac at various times. I'm <laughs> sure. Largely speaking, you know, even the fact that he sent his kids not to private schools, to state schools, where I hope they didn't get beaten up too much. But anyway, uh, yeah, he is always, there's always been an element of keeping his feet on the ground with Paul, I think. You've got some quotes from Norman Smith saying he was always the musical director. He says, obviously, John would have quite a lot to say, but overall, it was always Paul who was the governor. Hmm. I mean, that's something that, you know, we've talked about on the podcast. You know, John was older and he seemed to be a very um, dominant, you know, John was really driven to dominate. But, um, and, you know, Paul would say he shouted the loudest. But it sounds like Paul was, when they were in the studio, he was the musical director, as in that's where he would dominate. Yeah, absolutely, because he, he kind of knew what he was doing and knew what he wanted. He has a clear vision, I think, you know, of, of, of um, I mean, he's one of those people who can kind of look at an instrument and know how to play it before even picking it up. And a, he just has a clear musical vision. I mean, those songs are perfectly constructed. Right. Those songs are like Yesterday, which is not my favourite song, possibly because I've just heard it so many zillion yes, times. Yes. Perfectly constructed. One cannot deny this. You know, you, 
it's why it's so successful is obvious. Yeah. But he knows, he just knows completely what he's doing, probably to the annoyance of... Oh, Jewish. yeah. No, I, I can imagine. Uh, there was a... I saw an interview with a soprano who had worked with him, and she was like, yeah, he's very definite about he what he wants. But she was like, yeah, the greats that have vision always are. It's just they know what they want, you know? You know what you want, exactly. You know, I mean, when Bob Marley and the Whalers met Chris Blackwell, people said... You know, said to him, "Oh, they're difficult." You know, and he says, "Well, in my experience, that just means they know what they want to do." <laughs> it's true. When Brian Epstein dies, you know, it's Paul who tries to keep the whole thing going. Yeah, consciously or unconsciously, you know, he knows he's just got to keep this right. going. I don't think George like that very much. He feels he's being put down by. Paul all the time. They weren't, you know, they weren't using enough of his songs, etc. You know, John wasn't particularly supportive of that either. So no, no, but but Paul was the one who kind of Paul was playing bass because he had to. You know, they know they they you know with Stuart gone, someone had to do it. But Paul is 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 profoundly proficient on all instruments, really. You know, I mean, he would take over from Ringo yeah. on drums of the and the same, you know, and I think George, you know, this was the time of the guitar guitar hero was just beginning to yeah. emerge. I think George sort of felt a little bit threatened that his role, you know, he because he was sort of becoming a guitar hero, though we didn't think it a bit in those terms then. And, and the, the, but that Paul could play guitar almost as well, you know. Yeah. And in this interview in 86, when he talks to you, he does talk about that. He's, he said, I know I was overbearing. Like, he seems to be quite conscious of his... Ability to do that to be just over overbearing and overwhelming and take things over, but it's this duality because he knows how good he is. Yeah. So somebody said I heard on another podcast they were like, he must be so annoying because he's a know-it-all who kind of does know it all. Yeah, exactly. He has a justification for, for knowing it all and being like that. Right. I'm beginning to understand what I was doing. That it, that it was, it was half of it was as innocent as I thought it was. I didn't think we got Maxwell's Love Hammer right, so I kept pushing to get it right. And they said, "Man, we spent two days on this song already." And this did used to. I, I'm sure it did piss people off. And much as I tried to not piss people off, obviously, if you are, um, I don't know, driving force, overbearing, whatever you want to call it, if you are on the ball, a perfectionist, whatever, it can annoy some people. Because some people can just say, "Oh, come on, man, hang out. Come and just have a short. Go have a drink. You know, go have a smoke or something." It's just like, which you know, I did plenty of anyway. I mean, it wasn't as if I was just a relentless crazy. I mean, I didn't do any of the other. It just seemed to me when we went, when we had a session booked, it was a cool idea to turn up. You know, but that wasn't always the case. Like Sergeant Pepper, George turned up for his number and, and a couple of other sessions, but not very much else. Because George was supposed to present it to you for always getting on his back. He did resent it. But you see, for instance, <clears throat> two examples. One on, on Abbey Road. I was beginning to get too producery for everyone. George Martin was the actual producer, and I was beginning to sort of be too definite. You know, George and Ringo turned around and said, oh, look, piss off. We're fed up. Just back off. We're fine. We're grown-ups, and we'll do it without you. Fine. So I kind of go, oh, one of those people like me who don't realise when they're being overburned. It, it can be very... 
it comes a great surprise to actually be told you are overbearing, you know. So I completely clammed up and sort of backed off and sort of went, right, okay, I've burned. Back off. They're right. I'm a turd. Sit here. Fine. Okay, guys. So a day or so went by, two days, and the session started to flag a bit. Ringo eventually turned and said, come on, produce, come on. And so it was like you couldn't have it both ways. You know, you either had to have me doing what I did, which, let's face it, you know, I hadn't done too bad, or I was going to back off and become paranoid myself, which is what happened. Because a lot of wings was to do with that that I was just, I'd been told I was so sort of overbearing that, for instance, if the guitarists in Wings wanted to play a solo a certain way, I, I wouldn't dare tell them not, that it wasn't going to. And the other example that really pissed George off, but I do think I was right, was when we were making Hey Jude, but you're old, I hear it now, you know, but I've still got the same. Anyway, um, was we are making Hey Jude, and to me... It, it, it had to have a sparse opening. Hey, do, 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 do. just have this intimate opening, and it was going to build, and it was going to build a kitchen sink and eventually get to Nirvana, or near Nirvana. Anyway, so um, I start off, hey, do, and George went, do, 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 do. don't make it bad, do, 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 do. take a sad song, do, 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 do. I'll make it better, do, do, do. and George was answering every line through the whole song, and I just said, no, I really don't want that. It's my song. We always had the rule was whoever song it was got to say how the arrangement. So of course, you know that pissed him off, and I'm sure it pissed Ringo off when he couldn't quite get the drums to USSR, and I sort of sat in. I'm, I'm actually still very aware of that. It's a very weird thing to know you can do a thing that someone else is having trouble with because. One, you make it very simple, but just going down and doing it and just bluffing right through it and thinking, the hell, at least I'm helping. But the, obviously the paranoia comes in is, but I'm going to show him up. And I was very sensitive to that. I was sitting around thinking, should I say? It always came to, you should have said something. So, you know, it's always, it's just a it's very hard thing to balance that. So in the end, like I said, sometimes I was overbearing, sometimes they liked it. So it worked out. You quote Chris Thomas and said that he talks about the White Album because there's so much mythology around that too, which is actually starting to, like with a new White Album, we're starting to see there was a lot more fun than they characterized it. And he said, actually, I thought the atmosphere was all right. When they started playing, it was a really great atmosphere. They really rocked out and they were very funny. But it, he says, but when I worked with Paul later, I realized how much he'd been leading the Beatles. He is staggeringly gifted. He can be so precise, perhaps too precise. He's tremendously strong, but he knows perfectly well that the old cliche of all masterpieces consisting of 95% hard work is perfectly true. And he put in that hard work because he just loves it. He is a brilliant musician, more so than Lennon. Lennon's thing was something else altogether. Do you think yeah. that? Like, do you, what do you think that John's thing was? John, again, it goes back to that art school thing, you know, or that's what it, that's what, you know, he is, they're both artists. John's just a bit more eccentric, I think. <laughs> Probably always off on his own trip about possibly which he's rather confused. Yeah, I think, I suspect John had a lot of emotions going that he didn't really know how to deal with. Yeah. John John is the one who does does go into therapy. Well, that's the interesting thing. Paul, after the breakup, went through this really bad time, and he's told us about that. But John also checked himself into therapy for six months. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was just as we were talking, I was thinking, I wonder, I wonder if Paul ever did therapy. He's kind of think he probably, did, but a lot of people do nowadays. You know, I think in those days, in those days they wouldn't. I mean, John doing that was that was being quite avant garde, actually. Well, he John is original, and he is like he does try new things. I mean, he was advocating trepanning at one point. <laughs> Maybe to a crazy extent. Yes, that wasn't always healthy, but um, but he did try new things. He was always on to the latest thing, it seemed. I sat at dinner with them once. Linda and me came over. We sat at dinner. And John said, you fancy getting a trepanning thing done? I said, well, what is it? He said, well, you can have a hole board in your skull and, uh, you know, it relieves the pressure on your mouth. I said, well, look, we sit at dinner and this is seriously being offered as a serious... It wasn't a joke. It was in the 60s, by the way. Yeah. Because I remember people were into that. Yeah, it. Now, this wasn't a joke. This was like, let's go next week. We know a guy who can do it. And, you know, maybe we all go together. Yeah. And I said, well, look, you go and have it done. If it works great, tell us all about it. We'll have it but, you know, I'm afraid I'm just... I've always been a little bit uh, cynical about stuff like that. Thank God, I think. Because I think, you know, there's so much crap you've really got to be careful of. But John was more open to things like that. I think he always... I mean, his quote about Klein kind of sums it up. Anyone who's been so bad-mouthed can't be that bad. There was this kind of crazy reverse logic that, that anyone who's that bad must be good. All right. Yeah. And it's very difficult when you, you, you start going crazy you must be okay. <laughs> it <laughs> presumably must have had some good points. You know, but, but this is what I mean. It, it, it's very difficult to, to cope with that kind of thinking. Because you, you're having to... I mean, it's bad enough just trying to be logical. You're trying to be reverse logical. like, very difficult. And I remember getting letters from priests. This is a priest at a monastery used to send letters where he turned all the words backwards. And that's a hard habit to get out of. I don't know if you've ever gone through that. Where you, God becomes a dog, yeah. life becomes evil, and all that stuff. And he was doing this trip. And you start looking at every word then. Memo is Amen. Yeah, it's like numerology. You can't look at numbers without doing the calculation. And I, I had to train myself to stop, man. I don't want to know about this. You know, I'm sure anyone who's interested, great, good luck to you. I wouldn't put you down. You know, I'm sure there's, there's a lot in it. But I don't, I, I'm crazy enough anyway. So were you, I mean, you know, you were smoking a lot of dope as well. Were you getting paranoid as well? I mean, it doesn't make, yeah. you know, it doesn't help. No, no, it doesn't, no. Do you have a favorite McCartney period music-wise after the Beatles? Yeah, well, obviously the uh, band on the run period. I like that very much. It's, it's pretty great. Yeah. It's a fantastic record. No, it's slightly been forgotten about. I know. Yeah. It used to be, you know, during the 80s, one was aware that, that band on the run was a, a fantastic record. Uh, and I would play it all the time. But I've noticed now people... Oh, yeah, and Paul McCartney did make this really great record called, you know, it's sort of, it's the extent of its greatness, I think, has been slightly forgotten about. I know people talk about the first two albums a lot. Well, I love both the first two albums, you know, they're always a bit rough. No, it's not rough, it's just pretty great, actually. That's like what he felt like doing that. Band on the Run, obviously, is great. Yeah. 
actually, like when I started to dig into McCartney's solo work, that was the one. And right now, I don't see it on any lists of like. Oh, no, I know. It's, it's curious. It's too bad because, I mean, <laughs> I think 1985 is like one of the greatest songs ever. Well, I saw them, Wings, in 76. That's pretty fantastic. You know, it's no, you're not supposed to say this, but it's like, oh, it's as close as you're going to get to see the Beatles, actually. The footage looks amazing. It was kind of, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, I didn't like Paul's haircuts. It was like a classic mullet. But anyway, <laughs> sometimes he does get it a bit wrong, actually. Oh, he totally gets it. It's not a good look. Always when I look at the footage, I'm like, oh, that's not, not a good look, actually, at all. <laughs> but they were steaming. He reestablishes himself very much. Paul knew that's what you did at that stage. That's what Led Zeppelin were doing. That's what the Rolling Stones were doing. Like big acts, arena selling out or stadium selling out acts were doing that you had to do the big show. You knew that. He had the dynamics worked out very well because those, show, those shows depend on, you know, there's a lot of drama and he's funny, he's engaging. People loved him. They were seeing the Beatles. You weren't supposed to say that, of course. I know that my friend Joe Stevens, a photographer who went with Wings on on when when they're very early English tours, he knew Linda a bit, and she said to him, she said to him, "So how's it going, Captain Snaps? It's great being on tour with the Beatles." He, she said, "No, you do not say that. I'm sorry." And he was sort of moved. He was sort of moved to the back of the bus for a bit. Wait, she said, "How's it to be?" How's it going? And he said, "It's great." And Joe says, "It's great being on tour with the Beatles." That was really taken exception to. Presumably, don't mention the war. You know. Oh, that's interesting. I'm allowed to mention that group. That other group. You know, when I read about that period, that is said a lot. That Paul did not want to hear about the Beatles. Did not want to talk about it. No, understand. I can imagine why, because it's still very raw. Yeah, only like two or three years on from it, so you probably wouldn't want to hear about it. The photographer, uh, what did he think of being on tour with them? No, oh, he just thought it was very good fun. <laughs> it was very kind of great, actually. Again, in the story of the Beatles, it's kind of like the story goes that Paul was a disaster and a mess for the first years post breakup. Uh, then, when I've dug into it, and you kind of hear people talking about the early days of Wings, it actually sounds like they were having fun. Yeah, of course. And he's not really a disaster and a mess. I mean, okay, he may have drunk a bit, which is that's about all the only crime that's leveled against him. But he gets a group together. He gets gets it going. He does a tour of kind of, you know, of, of, of universities in this country, just turning up unannounced. I mean, I don't think that's being a mess. I mean, <laughs> no. he does keep getting busted, of course. But anyway, <laughs> that was, I thought that was his credit, really. I like that. I like the fact that a huge star went and did that, you know? Do you think that he was emotionally a mess or he was actually having some fun on, on that tour? No, I think he was having some fun on it. I think, of course, he's having some fun on it. And, and, and he and Linda are very happy. They're very happy together. She's good for it. Yeah, and especially that period seems to have been like a really good period of their, their romance. Yeah. Their relationship. yeah, and I think it continued. The relationship really continued. you know she's not a musician but i do think that she had an impact on his worldview at that time she's not english yeah but she's kind of she's a new yorker she's quite a hip new yorker she has a view of a different world and what does that mean like how does that impact things it expands him 
It expands him in his thinking. It expands him in his possibilities. I mean, he spends quite a lot of time in America. He's there quite a lot. And, you know, it was, America wasn't a bad place to be in those days. It was kind of an exciting place to be. It was a good creative energy. Do you have a perspective on their relationship? Um, I think she was—I think she was actually an extremely nice person, but I don't think it was easy for her because she sort of was quite very protective towards him. Yes. But she was very protective. I think probably kept him going, you know, after the Beatles split up. I think if she was around, life would have been much harder for him. What do you think would have happened if if she hadn't been around? Oh, he'd probably gone off. He might have gone off the rails a bit. You mean just in terms of drinking and drugs? Yeah, drinking, drugging, running around town or whatever. You know, I think she was a very, very stabilizing factor. Also, you know, they have children quite quickly. Yeah, yeah Mary's born quite quickly. And um, probably Paul wanted that sort of life by then. You know? Why was everybody so surprised by her as a partner? Well, I think because she just suddenly turned up, basically. <laughs> no one had heard anything about her. And also, she was in the shadow of Jane Asher, who was sort of here in England, certainly. The pair of them as a couple, they were sort of national treasures. They were sort of part of the scenery. Yeah, you know, we I've done a bunch of digging into Linda, too. She's actually much more interesting than, I think they almost didn't position her properly. When You know, strangely, she doesn't take a good picture. Ironically, as she's a yes. photographer, she doesn't look particularly great no. in pictures, but she looks in real life. What does she look like? Is she prettier in real life? Yeah. Yeah, that's the interesting thing is there seems to be a lot of men that found her very attractive, and yet she, it doesn't quite communicate in photos. I know. But that's all down to her personality, you know? She was quite enga- had a, quite an engaging personality, I think. I met her a couple of times. So I should, you know, I can't really comment, but that's how it would have seemed to me. You know? Did you see them together? Once. And what did they seem like together? She was very protective of him at first, and then I kind of said, "Look, you know, we have met." You know, and then we went and had a split. <laughs> was that in the seventies or eighties? Eighties. No, 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 early nineties. I wonder why, even at that time, it's interesting that she's so protective of him. She was like a bodyguard. Because she saw me coming, you know, she she spotted me coming over towards him and immediately stood in front of him. Did he need protection? It wasn't from me, but you know. <laughs> no, just in general. Obviously, not from you. Well, well I, I, you know, I, look, I'm sure, like as with other people that I know, you know, not as such a high league, but a pretty high league. There's always people coming up to you everywhere you go, saying, "Paul, you changed my yeah, life." Yeah. You know, and it's probably good. that's why he developed the thumbs up thing. Yeah, yeah. He could do that and didn't appear rude. But you know, that all that is fantastic to be told. He changed <laughs> my life. But when you're doing it several times a day, it probably gets a bit draining, actually. <laughs> yeah. And so do you think she was good for him overall? Seemed to be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. She seemed to be fantastic. I think. And what, from what you've heard, they they seem on the surface. From what I can tell, they seem to have had generally a pretty good relationship. Yeah, is that what you've heard? Or yeah, no, no, of course, no. I think it's sort of widely accepted that that was the case. Yeah. And then she also, I think, really embraced Scotland too. You know, he had Scotland, but they went up there. Do you think that was good for him? 
Yeah, yeah, of course, because it's it's stunningly beautiful up there. Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. You know, you can swim in the sea there. And, you know, don't forget that they're having to put out, you know, an album, you know, every few, every nine months. And the ter- and uh, in, in addition to the singles, so the terms of their contract, which the not very good contract, in fact, with EMI, were kind of, you know, would, would be restricting their existences. On the other hand, it would be boosting their creativity, you know, at the same time. You've got to deliver. Okay, let's deliver. But after a time, that does would become a bit much. You know, being in a group, being a musician, or being just a musician on the road, but being a group particularly, I think, is completely exhausting. It never stops. Yeah. You know, make the records, write the songs, make the records, promote them, get out on tour, do the interviews, radio stations. It's really hard work. It never stops. Have you seen this new trend on YouTube? They have um, YouTube channels where they just listen to albums that they've never heard before, and then they react. So I, I watched a bit of one about Ram the other day, and these young guys, like they were both in their 20s, they they didn't know that Paul and John were ever in a band together, and it wasn't a joke. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised. That's normal these days. They loved Ram. They were like, this sounds like it could be out today. They kept asking, and I've heard this said before, they were like, why wasn't this bigger? Like, it is such a good album. Why wasn't this, like, why isn't this a famous album? Because Paul put out the, uh, you know, the interview as the press release interview with the record. So that was the death knell critically of him for a time. All the Alan Klein stuff. Yes, exactly. Which, which Paul clearly was correct. <laughs> well, but I don't get it. Like, looking at the interviews from the time, I'm like, why weren't the press all on John and George's side versus Paul? Paul's position was pretty clear. I don't like this guy. He's a he's a crook. I didn't want to break up the Beatles. I don't know. Maybe things just start spinning, or maybe John was so magnetic at that time and so on top of... Well, John George- was... John was, you know, enjoying a particular period of great charisma because he's like, you know, he's this sort of, although it's a Rolling Stones song, but he's like the street fighting man, you know what I mean? He's out there, you know, he's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, he's friends with, for example, with Michael X, who's the leader of the British Black Panther Party. But John is kind of a figure of the underground. Yes. And Paul isn't really somehow. He sort of, sort of is. But he's not quite, not like John. John has really cemented himself in that position. Probably helped getting busted for heroin, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that gives him some cred. I always find it interesting that John was like counterculture, which was very cool at the time. But Paul's just eccentric. Like he just is, he's not counterculture. He's just kind of his own little. You're right. John is counterculture and Paul is more underground. Because Paul is definitely is counterculture. I mean, all his involvement with, you know, the, with Miles' bookshop and with Indica, you know, and, and his, you know, he's, he's, I mean, I would say even, you know, obviously Magical Mystery Tour is a completely counterculture production. Paul was out there doing some of this stuff and he doesn't get the cred. And in his interview with you in 1986, he's saying that. He was like, you know, I was doing all these things underground. Like I was into the avant-garde before John. Yeah. But I didn't say anything. And he, he doesn't blame John. He's like, well, you know, it's not that John made, it's just that John's very enthusiastic and talked about it. And I didn't. Right now, like I read so often, I read an article the other day about like, thank God Yoko Ono came in and introduced 
the avant-garde to the Beatles. And that's I just like, that's just not the story. I'm sorry, it's not. No, it's not true at all. It's just not true. And literally, this was like that she saved the Beatles because she introduced new ideas. And it's just like, that's just, it's just bullshit. And I don't know why I care. It's not my life. It's not, you know. I'm, well, well, but, I'll tell you why you care, because it's just another of the countless modern day distortions of reality. It is, in fact, fake news. It is, it is. Uh, we had many a wondrous stoned evening at his place with uh, listening to all sorts. See, that was another of the interesting things that... See, I, I think I've, I've got, like, a certain personality. To me, if I give charity, I don't, I don't like to shout about it. So some people think I don't give charity. If I... No, I get into avant-garde stuff. I don't particularly shout, hey, you know what I'm into now, avant-garde stuff. I just kind of do it and get on with it. So way before John met Yoko and got avant-garde, I was like the avant-garde London bachelor with, with Miles, my pad in St. John's Wood. I was making like eight movies and we showing them to Antonio. That's pretty far out stuff, you know. And, and putting uh, I, I all sorts of theories, you know, of um, music synchronization, where we, we put on a Ravi Shankar record to our home movies and it had synchronized. I just did it with my kids the other day, actually, with our home movies. It does, it does, it fits, it fits. Yeah, it fits. I was doing this in the 60s. But, you know, how much kind of looking slightly, we should do more. This sort of attitude of, well, you know, I am to what I am, this is me just learning. Files, anyway, turned me on to a lot of that international times. Was it the Green Review or something? Evergreen. Yeah. Did you tell me about your We used to do a lot of that. But, I mean, it never really came out about me. When John went out with God, you knew about it. Was that because he was a self-publicist or was it just that? No, he's just enthusiastic for whatever he was doing. John was very upfront. I'm not as upfront. I'm, uh, I'm just a different personality. You know, it just doesn't occur to me to tell people everything I'm doing. Uh, but, you know, I was into quite a sort of heavy avant-garde trip. I had to sit with Burroughs in the basement. And there were, there were a couple of gay guys that were in Burroughs that knew women who were like friends of mine. I, I, I don't know how I got in jumped in bar and face the crowd. And it, just, it was a scene around London, you know. It didn't matter, gay, shmay, who cared, you know. Um, and we used to sit down in Montague Square, where John eventually got a flat. That was yeah, a connection, where he got busted. That was where we used to go. And I remember sitting around with Burroughs, you know, to do little tapes and backwood guitar and cello and crazy stuff. But um, it didn't occur to me the next enemy interview I did to say, hey, have you heard of William Burroughs, man? He's in town and he's writing the greatest album. I, maybe it would have been good for me to do that. I don't know. You know, I just, just kind of do what occurs to me, you know, and sometimes he's right, sometimes he's wrong. But um, let's say, you know, Yoko turned up to see me first in London. She met me before she met Charles. Yes, no, I didn't know that. See, this is what I mean, you know, they, and you won't hear it off them either because they're, they're Scotland's elder. Let me finish the story that I was telling you. So all of a sudden these guys were like, oh, Ram's a, an amazing album. Why isn't this more famous? They were like, Linda's such a good singer. <laughs> and they were like, I wish there was more Linda. Correct. I thought it was hilarious because you would never read that. But again, because they didn't have the baggage of they don't know she's untrained. 
great. I mean, it was kind of a noble act that she was prepared to do this. Obviously, she kind of has to do it. It was noble, but, you know, from some interviews right around the period and right after Wings, she sort of talked about the fact that, like you said, it was noble she did it for him so that he he had the courage. I mean, to me, that suggests how dependent he was on John and vice versa, that they needed their significant others to be sure. on stage with them. Sure. And actually, actually, Paul having Linda in the group is really kind of quite punk rock. It is. I mean, it's, you know, it's five years ahead of punk. But what the hell I do is, no, you don't have to be a musician. You just do it. Yes. Again, so you could therefore make that out, make yeah. that as a, an argument for it being kind of avant-garde, actually, avant-garde thinking. Linda sometimes sounds a little punk rock. Like, that's her voice is kind yeah. of like... Yeah, exactly. She's more punk rock than Paul is, actually. Yeah. yeah. I want it, not read to you more than any boardroom bitterness or squabbling the close proximity in time of the wedding symbolized the irrevocable split between the two men it also explained much of the subsequent acrimony particularly on john's part for he had been free to marry yoko since november 8th of the previous year when his divorce from cynthia had been finalized yet it seems no coincidence that john remarried only a week after paul's wedding no matter how much he loved Yoko, the Gibraltar ceremony seems like something close to an on-the-rebound reaction to the loss of his first great love, Paul McCartney, whose matriarchal sense of order but paternal sense of purpose had provided John with a stabilizing influence. As Paul had sought a mother figure, so John had found a substitute for both his father, the missing Alf Lennon, and his errant mother, Julia, in the vastly complex figure of Paul McCartney. In later years, John would admit that Paul had been the first love of his life and Yoko the second. One of the things that you capture that I think other authors don't necessarily is that Paul is both paternal, like even though Paul looked up to John when they were younger, he does play this maternal and paternal role for John, a very stabilizing influence. And I think he does have John's number to some extent, even from the beginning. Like he's, even though John, he looks up to John when he joins, he gets rid of the band pretty quickly. So clearly he's not afraid of John, you know? Yeah. So do you have anything else to say about that? Like when you hear that? I just think, I just think that's kind of like is sort of what it is. That's sort of what their relationship was. It says a lot about Paul's strength. Paul's strength and his ability. And it's almost like why he's lasted almost as an archetype, isn't it? Because he does have this both male and female side which seem pretty integrated, actually, but they're kind of also very useful at crucial times, really. Uh, and that's almost why he's such an archetype, really. You know, the male and female, you know, is it's important, really, in sort of archetypal figures, because that's, you know, that's what we're supposed to evolve into, really, isn't it? And to integrate those aspects of ourselves, I think. Well, Jung would say that. Yeah, well, I, I agree. But in some ways, it makes him less easy to understand. Like, John is a little bit easier to mythologize as a character. Paul is a... Yeah, I know, because Paul's is more complex. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, after all the digging we've done, once you get past the posturing of John, John's pretty easy to read. At least, I mean, I don't know, I, I think. Easier to read than Paul. You know, I'm still always like, I think he might be talking about this, but I'm not entirely sure because we never know. 
Yeah. Well, it gives the less away, too. When you met Paul in 86, how did he look at that time? Really in good shape. You know, he had an aura about him, healthy, happy, uh, good spirits. He seemed like he seemed like Paul McCartney. He seemed like a good Paul McCartney. Yeah, he looked good. Yeah. Good. I mean, I didn't really, I don't think I ever thought, I just thought the whole package, it all seemed okay. <laughs> Paul was kind of like, you know, the doe-eyed heartthrob, really. I mean, the girls like Paul. Was was Paul quite, because he's sometimes said to be pretty, and I can see that in some shots. I mean, I didn't really, it just seemed, it all seemed to work. You know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't really analyse it. You know, in those situations, you don't really. You know what I mean? I've met him subsequently. He always looks good. Yeah, but you yeah. didn't think, oh, he's a pretty boy. You just thought he's a oh, nice no, looking guy. No, 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 I didn't. And he seemed very, he was businesslike and friendly, absolutely to the point. New yeah. Oh yeah, he was. He came in hot to talk to you. That's one thing I noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I uh, he liked you at the at that point. He was like ready to talk. Yeah, I'd, I'd been to see him maybe the day before. Was it that morning? No, I think it's the day before. I'd been invited to come along and meet him. He was doing a BBC interview, and they met him then, and it was like it was all kind of nice and cool. expectation was that your book was going to be going to trash him was that it was that what was happening to him at that time was yeah it like that? yeah 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 everyone 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 would just have, no one really certainly in england no one really had a good word for paul McCartney. what what did he do that was so bad? No, well, like, well that was my point why i wrote the book actually <laughs> because of all those reasons that we said you know because he was the one who supposedly broke up the beatles when he had um, but I mean, this is 15 years later, you know, it's like, no, no, it, was it was still carrying on, though, which must have been very difficult for him psychologically. You know, uh, everyone is sneering at you for 10, 15 years. It's a bit much. It would be strength. It would also be strengthening, ultimately, I imagine. I don't get it. Like, I don't get how he wasn't crushed. I mean, I can't even imagine. It says a lot about his strength of character and personality. It says a wow. lot, but it was kind of, but it was like anything he did was sneered at. I mean, you know, he did let himself in for it. So, I mean, how do you react to criticism of that? I mean, mm -hmm. do you take I, I don't really know. I, now I'm being very flash and very nonchalant, saying I don't care. But I haven't seen too many reviews, and if I, when I see bad reviews, it'll hurt me. Um, but I am giving myself a bit easier time in life these days. Uh, I've gone through so much criticism, and not just from critics, from, from people like that, um, like a fool, I can actually just stood there and sort of said, yeah, well, you know, you must be right, I've done this, I, that wasn't too nice. I'm beginning to see it a bit differently now. I'm beginning to see a lot of what they say is their problem, not mine, a lot of the time. And in John's thing, you know, when, when as you, I mean, you, you obviously know, he was going through a lot of pain when he said a lot of that stuff. And he felt that we were um, being kind of vindictive against him and Yoko. In actual fact, I just answered a question on the American TV thing. I think we were quite good looking back on it, knowing people in life. Many people were just down tools with a situation like that. He just said, look, man, she's not sitting on our hands while we're making a film. 
mean, that wouldn't be unheard of. I mean, Sean Penn. Do you know what I mean? You know, that most people would just say, we're not having this person here. Don't care how much you love them. But we were actually quite supportive. Not supportive enough. You know, it would have been nice to be really supportive because then we'd look back and say, weren't we really terrific? But looking back now, I think we were okay. We were never really that mean to I think a lot of the time, John suspected meanness where it wasn't really there. Oh, he's presumably very paranoid. I think so. I mean, he warned me off Yoko once. You know, look, this was my, my chick, you know, just because he knew my reputation. I mean, we knew each other rather well. And um, I felt, right, I just kind of said, yeah, no problem with this. I mean, I sort of did feel he ought to have known I wouldn't. Well, Paul says in this 86 interview that he does with you, he talks about the fact, like, Paul seems like he's really trying to figure out what happened at that time. Like, he's going back to the breakup to figure out. Yes, I felt that. I felt it was still a mystery to him a little bit. And, you know, he says to you, he talks about, like, well, we know that John was hurt. So what, what was John hurt about? And the interesting thing to me is Paul does not seem to understand how important he was emotionally to John. You know, like he's looking for external things. But John is hurt by life anyway. You know, his stuff between his parents when he's three, you know, his mum being killed. John's hurt by life, I think. You know, he's permanently hurt. There's probably might have been an explanation for the heroin, of course. But John is hurt by life, I always felt. Yes, but if he's in this place of hurt, also the people that he counted on most, I think he would have felt most devastated by, or like Paul getting married and sort of turning his attention away from John, I suspect hurt John. Yeah. You know, we don't know what he was thinking, but I just found it interesting that Paul seems to be a little clueless about John's emotional state. Like he both seems to understand John and then not understand why he would have hurt John so much. Mm. I, know, I know, but also let's not forget, when you're in a rock and roll band like that, everything is moving so fast. You know, the pressures are huge. And, and you know, and I take my hat off to Paul because he kind of like kept it together because of all that. But the pressure, and you start, start not thinking rationally, basically, because you haven't got time. They were, they were kind of like, you know, they were, they were a creative factory. It was like the stuff was pouring yeah. out of them, probably pouring out of Paul more, certainly in the, in the late years, than, than, than John. But it's, it's an exhausting process. And, uh, you know, that's why bad decisions get made sometimes. Well, not bad, you know, not necessarily bad decisions. Decisions, the consequences of which you don't necessarily consider. And which may have nothing to do with you, like i.e., that John's going to get hurt by my marrying Linda. Wouldn't really cross your mind no. too much, probably. You know. But the fallout was clearly quite large. So I saw that thing in the Observer last week. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I think that starts to show some of the pain he was going through. I think, okay, I mean, you know. Hell, anyway, look, he was a great guy, great sense of humor. We did it. I'd do it all again. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I'd go through it all again and have him slap me off all again. You know, just because it was so great. Those are all the down moments. Because there was, there was much more pleasure than, than has really come out. Every article now, I'm always saying, I'm sorry, this and my other drama. Really, I'm quite happy. I mean, we had a wonderful, I had a wonderful time with one of the world's most talented people. That's like a plus. I say, 
we, we had all these crazinesses. But for instance, when if someone took one of your wedding photos, if you're married, someone took your wedding photo and put a funeral on it, you kind of you, you, you tend to feel a little bit sorry for the guy. You think, wait a minute, you know. I mean, I'll tell you what, if I'd ever done that to this thing, it would have just hit the roof. But I, I kind of just sat through it all and was mild-mouthed Clark Kent. You know, this, hurt, this must have hurting you, presumably, though, or not half. Yeah. And, but, I mean, when did you actually get a perspective? I still haven't. It's still inside me. I was just talking to someone the other day. I said, John was lucky he got all his hurt out, got all his pain out, he got all his feelings out. I'm not really that kind of person. Um, I'm a different sort of personality inside me that sort of is still trying to work it out. And that's why, you know, it's kind of good to see that wedding funeral bit because I started thinking, wait, this is, this is someone who's going over the top. This isn't just your average jibe. This is like paranoid. This is paranoia manifesting itself. Did you know that Paul made a statement in 1985 that John told him Jealous Guy was written about Paul. I think I did. So, wait a minute. John is saying that John's the jealous guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's correct. Yes. Yeah. You know, but but I think at this point, Paul was trying, like, he used that. I've heard a bunch of interviews, and he drops that statement a lot. I think he's trying to say there was jealousy involved. And Ray Connolly said that, that he tried to promote, like, he found John quite jealous of Paul, and he tried to promote that idea, but people don't didn't want to hear it. Like he said, I stopped trying to talk about it because nobody wanted to hear it. Charles just seems insecure, you know, hence him going into therapy, whatever yeah. sort of it was, you know what I mean? I mean, at least yeah. he's being honest about that, you know, he's facing up to that. I love that about John. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying earlier, you know, he's a very sensitive guy. He's you know, he was coming through, I'm just a jealous guy, I'm, he was a paranoid guy, and he was into drugs, heavy. Yeah, which makes you proud. He was into heroin. See, which I, I hadn't realised till just now. It's all in my brain. I was just figuring, oh, there's John, my buddy, he's turning on me, because he perceives that I'm a McCarthy bandwagon, he once said to me, oh, they're all on the McCarthy bandwagon. It was an and to me, I was just releasing a record. Okay, so you can call it a copy band record, but it's no, it's no harm. It's no more than anybody else does when you put out a record. Yeah. And yeah, things like that were hurting him. And uh, looking back on it now, I just think it's a bit sad, really. Um, you know, consumed with... Look, it's not just his mum. It's like when he's three, his mum and dad saying, okay, who you gonna, which one of us are you going to go and live with? Yeah. And first he goes to his dad and then turns and goes to his mum. That would destroy you for your whole life. Totally. Oh, my God, the regret. I was like, did I make the regret? And not only that, Chris, but then his mum turns around and gives them to his aunt. So he's like, exactly. what did I do wrong? Or should I have chosen my dad? Or, you know, did she not love me enough? I mean, that's horrible. Yeah. So I think Paul understood that about John. Like there's there's a bit in in this interview where he says, it's really interesting because he's like, oh, I still think of John the way I did then. I, you know, he's my buddy. I don't want to go too hard on him, which I think is fascinating and sort of challenges the dominant narrative because, you know, John is seen as the really tough one. But Paul's saying here that there's a part of him that understands John that doesn't doesn't want to hurt John. I think he understands how. Yeah. 
how how sensitive John is, yeah. you know? My feeling is just like it sort of was at the time, which is like, ah, uh, you know, it's my body. I don't want to, I don't really want to do anything to hurt him or his memory or anything. I don't want to hurt Yoko. But at the same time, it doesn't mean I understand what went down. But that's pretty radical, though, don't you think? Yeah, of course. People didn't necessarily think like that in those days either. No, because I hear all the time, people say all the time, Paul shouldn't have started something with John because he knew he'd be clobbered. You know, John is the way tougher one. And I'm always like, I don't know. I think sometimes held back, you know? No, he's not. No, I would say Paul's much tougher. But not publicly. No, not publicly. But, you know, I mean, it's basically Yoko. You know, I was amazed when I heard that John and Yoko had split up and that he goes to live in L.A., and you wonder if, well, whose idea is this, basically. Yeah. Well, May Pang said in her book that John even said that the splitting from the Beatles was Yoko's idea. But you know what? Even the guy, they stayed with um, this um, musician in Canada when they were meeting with the, the prime minister in Canada, and uh, he was one of the guys from the, the band. Anyways, John and Yoko stayed with him, and, and he said that Yoko left messages written messages everywhere throughout his house about what john could and couldn't do at that period and that was 1969 right right i mean clearly john liked that you know so like i'm not blaming you know he wanted that yeah exactly but it just suggests how much john likes to be controlled yeah so was paul controlling did he feel paul was controlling him in a positive way by running the beatles but then people when they're being controlled, eventually they tend to sort of wake, you know, wake up and say, oh, I don't like being controlled, you know, piss off. I think so. I think Paul controlled a lot and John liked it. Yeah. And at some point, at some point, John maybe felt Paul had taken over too much and wasn't really noticing or appreciating John anymore. Like that that's what I think happened at some point. They had a great relationship that they were kind of, you know, they were... Uh, I mean, you know, destiny had brought them together, and they were, uh, you know, they were perceptive enough to be able to see that. I'm sure. But anyway, generally speaking, you know, what I'm saying is, I loved John. I was his best mate for a long time. Then the group started to break up. It was very sad. I mean, I'd go through it all again and have him slap me off all again. You know, just because it was so great. Those are all the down moments. Because there was there was much more pleasure. Than, than really come I would say that they went all went mad, basically. Even though they'd stopped going on the road, and that in itself would have been a, created withdrawal symptoms. You know, but that constant pressure to perform, get stuff out. You know, that 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 really that rat race that you're on. Yep, yep. Doesn't do anyone any favors in the end. And then the whole Apple notion, which sounded fantastic, of course, mm-hmm. when they're first talking about it, you know, on American TV, on British TV, all sounded great. But that all went, you know, it all went belly up. And the whole Apple project, yeah. I mean, it was all out of control. And so I think that would have been quite confusing. And they're all, they're all doing quite a lot of drugs at the time. I don't think Paul is doing much acid, but I think, I think all the others are. You know, they're, all the others are doing all sorts of stuff. So I would think no one had got a clue what was going probably got to the point where they wondered what the hell's going on. 
Where are all these people who've moved in? You know, this is my place. All of them, all four of them will be thinking this. So I just think it all kind of, you know, you just go a bit nuts. But then you start to make bad decisions. I mean, Ray Connolly said that he thinks that Paul and John were both having nervous breakdowns yeah, at that yeah. time. No, I mean, I, I literally mean that, yeah. When I say they went mad, I'm mean, not just being glib. They went a bit mad, you know. Yeah. And also, you know, are they in states of depression? You know, when you're doing smack or whatever, you know, are you in a, why are you doing this? Is it you doing it just to be hip? You're thinking it's going to lead you down other alleyways of creativity. Not good thinking, guys. Definitely doesn't help. It does seem, you know, is John insisting that she goes to the studio or is she insisting that she go to the studio? That does, I mean, in taking her to the studio, he does seem to be saying, there is, I mean, it's hard not to analyse it like that. There is an element of that, isn't there? This will piss them off. Yeah. He's not stupid enough. And I know he's talking about bagism and all, you know, and he's turning it into an artistic concept as well. Oh, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think it's ridiculous to suggest that they were just so in love that he couldn't leave her at home or she sure. could. I mean, this was an act. It's a stunt going on. But the whole Yoko John thing is very difficult. There's so much they there's so much smoke around that they created themselves. I know. Like trying to mythologize their relationship that it makes it confusing. But I think that John bringing Yoko into the studio was probably most aimed at Paul because, you know, it ruined their partnership and that Paul says that he wasn't able to write with Yoko right next to to John. And so I think it was a challenge to Paul. Oh, no, I agree. But in some ways, I think John wanted Paul to behave differently and step it up in some way, maybe appreciate John. I don't know what it was, but he wanted Paul to do something differently that Paul, for some reason, didn't do. He didn't step it up and fight Yoko. Yeah, well, he probably was being well brought up. Maybe he misinterpreted John, too. Maybe he was just like, you know what, this is what John needs or John doesn't need me to stand up. But uh, I talked to Bob Spitz, and he said that was Paul, Paul had two regrets. One with, was Northern Songs, and the other was not standing up to John about Yoko in the studio. So it's yeah. kind of sad, you know? But John is pulling such a clear stunt. We see it as sort of like a gauntlet thrown. Like, sure it is. It's all those things. It's all those things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, it, it, like you said, he sounded clear and he sounded honest, and I was surprised that... Paul just didn't seem to have an idea of what, what went on in, in the breakup. Um, a very clear view, but he didn't really. It was still sort of puzzling him. It was still puzzling him. I really didn't want to do anything to hurt him. Or his memory or anything. I don't want to hurt Yoko. But at the same time, it doesn't mean I understand what went down. But I don't, I don't, it doesn't necessarily... I mean, I went, at Yoko's request, I went to New York recently. Did you say she was no. uh, I went to New York. She said she wanted to see me. And I said I was going through New York and stuff. And, uh, so I kind of stopped off and rang her. She said she couldn't see me that day. I was in New York. I was about 400 yards away from her. And I said, well, I mean, I'll pop over any time today. Five minutes, ten minutes, whenever you can squeeze me in. She said, it's going to be very difficult. I said, well, okay, I understand. What is the reason, by the way? She said, um, I was up all night with Sean. I said, well, I understand that. I've got four kids. I understand that. It's terrible. I said, but you're bound to have a minute today, sometime. I said, I'm leaving soon. 
don't really hang around. But she asked me to come. Flown in specially. Oh, you come there specially? Yeah. See yeah, you see it. She didn't see me. So I, I, so I, I kind of a little bit humiliated, but I said, okay, 9.30 tomorrow morning then. Let's make an appointment. She rang up about 9 o'clock and said, could you make it tomorrow morning? I mean, completely off the record. I mean, she's still somebody, isn't she? She's still, she's still method, isn't she? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, it's, I honestly don't know. Man. I honestly don't know. Um, so that, that's the kind of thing, you know, what I'm saying is like, it wasn't all my fault. I'm beginning to let myself off a lot. Do you have a lot of guilt? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when some of the world's greatest entertainer calls you angry Bert Humperdinck, you get feelings of something. And, um, yeah, I always felt guilty. Always felt guilty. But looking back on it, I keep thinking, okay, let's try and, let's try and analyze it. Our job was hurt. What was he hurt by? What was the single biggest thing that we can find in all our research that hurt John? And the biggest thing I can find is that I told the world the Beatles were finished. I don't think that's so hurtful. I know he said, you know, it was like... Um, for publicity for my album. That's hurtful. Big deal. Four months after the group... People do do these things Four months after the group's broken up, and we've waited for four months to see if we get back together again, I then announced... I'll tell you what was unfortunate, the method of announcing it all, which again was the story behind that, which was what I said to the guy at the office, Anthony Peter Brown, of book fame, I said, I've got an album coming out, can't we? I said, I don't really want to see too much press. Can you do me some question and answer things? I answered them all. Got them printed up and put in the press copies of the album. But I think the perception of that when it arrived on the journalist's desk was, oh, this is McCartney really from it now. And I kind of shudder. Oh, I could see it quite clearly. At the time, it was me trying to answer some questions that were being asked. And I decided to not fudge that question. And I say, looking back on it, I don't think, I mean, if that's the most hurtful thing I did, I haven't really heard much else beyond that. Actually, I interviewed George not long after that. And George was disparaging about Paul's confusion, which I found strange. I found George a little bit bitter, to be honest, particularly when I referred to the Beatles. Was George's clear? Like, why was he disparaging about Paul's confusion? Was he like, it's clear why we broke up? Was it clear to George? Uh, it was, there was a little sneer in there. Well, you know, it was like, and I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was like, you know, well, some people take it, to, you know, take it all too seriously. What, you know, something like that. You know, he was, he was a little, he was quite disparaging. But I would like to say, then, what's your opinion, George? I probably asked him. I'm sure that I asked him. I can't remember. It was a TV interview I was doing. Paul talked about George and the fact that they got along as long as they didn't talk about business. Do you have much to do with them now, George? Uh, I'm just starting to, to, to get back with them, really. Uh, we've, it's all business troubles. It's all business troubles. Seems to be. I mean, you know, that's what really spoils the whole thing for us. If we don't talk about Apple, we get on like a house of fire. The minute anyone mentions Apple, something comes up and they'll, they'll sort of say, well, you wouldn't show us your records to the uh, accounts. And I'll but I did. Your man is now at this moment in my office. And so, oh, like hell he is. And we have major misunderstandings over things like that. Uh, but I do bend over backwards to sort of try and uh, not 
piece and it was crazy with that stuff. But no, so I've just started to see them again. And I had a great day the other day with George. He came down to visit me. And we really had, for the first time in, in billions of years, been a nice time. Because George was my original mate. What, more than I knew George. Yeah. Before. Well, he lived near me. So I lived. I lived. Uh, he lived in Upton Green. Yeah. Little little, little close kind of thing. And I lived in Ardwick Road. Yeah. It was like half a mile away. So we were mates. Took the same bus to the same school, the 500, which was the express. So we took the same bus. So we often would sit together. And then we got a guitar about the same time. And we went through the chord books and saying Burt Weed and guitar technique chord books, and we learned DNA together and me. And uh, we, were, we were quite big buddies then. So that was something I'd missed really for all these years. You know, we, we got all professional and Beatles and everything. You lose that, obviously. And he just came down the other day and we didn't talk anything about it. And we didn't pick it. Somebody said, so I told somebody else this the other day that, that I'd seen him. And they said, did you, did you play together? It was American. I said, nope, didn't touch an instrument, didn't do anything. It was just back on, back as mates, like on the bus. He's very into trees and planting and horticulture, as I am more now. So we talked about plant trees. What's that plant? That's nice. It was really great to actually sort of relate as two people and try and get all that crap out of the window and put it to one side for once. It's so such a waging stuff. That seems to be part of the process. He seems to be emerging more anyway. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's coming to now. We're all kind of coming too. And that we all we all brushed off this old Beatle episode and so it's wow, it's no big deal. Obviously, it's a big deal. It was a huge crash. You know, it, was, it never was a big deal. That was it, like, you know. So uh, I don't think half of us know what happened to us, really. Did you get that same impression from George, or was George more better? No, no, I got the, the impression that George was quite snide. I was a little bit shocked, because I thought this was... I, I want, you know, I thought he was being small-minded and petty. But at the same time, George is always being told you know, your songs aren't good enough or, you know, or whatever, you know? He's kind of like, being, he's always like the younger kid in the relationship, isn't he? I was surprised. I, I, did, I really actually didn't really like George because of his attitude. In fact, I was shocked. I mean, someone, <clears throat> somewhere today, actually, it was George's birthday today, that's why I'm saying mm. this, Jeff Slate has written a piece about how George is now the most popular of all the Beatles. Oh, for sure he is. Which he seems to be. Yep. Which he does seem to be. I mean, it does always help to die. I mean... It... <laughs> he, he talks about his role in the John and, and Yoko romance. Like, he seems to get the fact that John and Yoko have this narrative, he calls them Scott and Zelda, and this narrative that they love about the John and Yoko story. Look, like May Pang says that. She said John and Yoko loved talking about their love. Yeah. Um, and he talks about how he was the one that got them back together um, and actually even introduced them accidentally by sending Yoko to John's house. Yeah. Um, but he says that I won't get any credit in that because they don't want me in their story. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, of course. Yoko turned up to see me first. No, she met me before she met Charles. No, I didn't know. See, this is what I mean. You know, they, and you won't hear it off them either because they're, they're Scott and Zelda. Now they want the they want the story just how they put it out. She turned up. Um, 
Uh, for a charity thing, it was something to do with, she wanted manuscripts. Something to do with avant-garde music, Cage, uh, John, John Cage in New York. There was some benefit for somebody. And she was looking for manuscripts, uh, any any spare lyric sheets you had around, and I was pretending to be on the backs of envelopes, quite funky little things. But to tell you the truth, I didn't want to give her any. Big deal. So, you know, I'm allowed. I don't have to do it. It just, I didn't want it. I kept these manuscripts, are very precious to me. The cause didn't seem so great. I forget what it was. So I said, but does it, my mate might be interested? John, you know, I gave her John's address. And I think that was first how they hooked up. Um, and then she had her exhibition and stuff. And then their, their side of the story starts to happen. And also, I, I kind of um, say, you know, I feel like I'm kind of justifying living, you know, which is a bit of a piss off because I don't really want to have to sit around and justify myself. It's a bit humiliating. But there are lots of things that haven't come out. I mean, for instance, when they bust up their marriage, she came through London. He'd gone, he was in LA doing pussycats with Nielsen and having a generally quite crazy time of it all. And he was the guy, you know, the famous story, don't you know who I am? He says, the waitress, she says, yeah, the jerk with the cotex on his head. And he was doing that, and fighting and photographers and, and the haranguing the Smothers Brothers. Generally, being when they loved Yoko, and they had a very, very deep, strong uh, relationship. But they were into all sorts of crazy stuff, and uh, I don't know the half of that. I don't, a lot of people don't know the half of that. It's hints that keep coming out in books, but you never know whether you can believe those. Yes. Yes. All sorts. Well, I certainly did get a postcard. We all got postcards from Yoko saying, go around the world in a southeasterly direction, it would be good for you. Um, I sat at dinner with them once. Linda and me came over. We sat at dinner. And John said, you fancy getting a tree panning thing done? I said, well, what is it? He said, well, you can have a hole board in your skull and, uh, you know, it relieves the pressure on your mouth. I said, well, look, we sit at dinner. And this is seriously being offered as a serious... It wasn't a joke. in the 60s, by the way. Yeah. Because I remember people were into that. Yeah, people into it. Now, this wasn't a joke. This was like, let's go next week. We know a guy who can do it. And, you know, maybe we all go together. Just go down. Yeah. And I said, well, look, you go and have it done. And if it works great, tell us all about it. We'll have it But, you know, I'm afraid I'm just... I've always been a little bit uh, cynical about stuff like that. Thank God, I think. So I think, you know, there's so much crap you've really got to be careful of. But John was more open to things like that. I think he always... I mean, his quote about Klein kind of sums it up. Anyone who's been so bad-mouthed can't be that bad. There was this kind of crazy reverse logic that, that anyone who was that bad must be good. All right. Yeah. And it's very difficult when you, you, you start on the race against Hitler. Hitler presumably must have had some good points. You know, but, but this is what I mean. It, it, it's very difficult to, to cope with that kind of thinking. Because you, you're having to... I mean, it's bad enough just trying to be logical. You're trying to be reverse logical. It's, like, very difficult. And I remember getting letters from priests. This is a priest and a monastery used to send letters where he turned all the words backwards. And that was a hard habit to get out of. I don't know if you've ever gone through that. Where you, God becomes a dog, yeah. life becomes evil, and all that stuff. And he was doing this trip. And you start looking at every word then. Memo is, on him. Yeah, it's like numerology. You can't look at numbers without doing the calculation. 
And I mean, I had to train myself to stop, man. I don't want to know about this. You know, I'm sure anyone who's interested, great. Good luck to you. I wouldn't put you down. You know, I'm sure there's, there's a lot in it. But I don't, I, I'm crazy enough anyway. So were you, I mean, you know, you were smoking a lot, though. So were you getting paranoid as well? I mean, it doesn't make yeah. it doesn't help. No, no, it doesn't, no. Um, yeah, it's been quite paranoid, yeah. I was telling you about the marriage thing. When they, when they broke up, um, she came, we all came through London and visited us, which was very nice. And Linda and I just got married a bit before. We lived in this big sort of old house in St. John's Wood. And uh, Yoko came by and we started talking. Obviously, the important subject for us is what's happened. You've broken up then. You know, you're here, he's there. What's, what's happened? And she was very nice and confided in us that... Yeah, you know, it's kind of broken up. But she's been very strong about it, been very, not feminist, but being a strong woman rather than just submitting to it all. And she said, no, he's got to work his way back. If he's to get back with me, I can't just go. And she couldn't, She's, which is good. You know, I mean, I, I think she would be mad to just go and prostrate herself at his feet, kind of thing. But um, she said, no, he's going to have to work it. And I said, well, look, I mean, if I see him, what, are you still in love? Do you still still love me? She said, yeah. I said, well... Would you be? Would you think it was an intrusion if I kind of said to him, "Look, man, she loves you, and there's a way to get back, and you can." Sounds like Beatles songs. It sounds like those. I send all my loving from me to you. Um, and I said this uh, to Yoko. I said, "Would that be okay? Would you hate that?" Uh, but you know, we might see him around. So I like to be a mediator in this because I think you, the two of you, obviously, you've got something pretty strong going. <clears throat> and she said she didn't mind. So that was that visitor. We went out to visit them and doing pussy, and they were doing pussy cats. And uh, it was weird, and just meeting everything. But then I, I just said to John, who was in the house with uh, Nielsen, Jesse, uh, his mum, and a few of the guys, and they were all this pretty crazed house there. You know, you hear some of the stories come out of that house, and um, it was pretty wild days. And I said to him, hey, come on, come in. Come in the back room. I want to talk to you privately. So we went in the back room and I sat him down privately. And I said, look, I feel a bit like a matchmaker here. But this girl, you know, she really still lives. Do you love her? Uh, in the divorce call, you know, the divorce happened. But I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I'll talk to her. So I said, she does still love you. But you're going to have to work your little ass off, man. You have to get back to New York. You have to take a separate flat. You have to send her roses every fucking day. You have to work at it like a bitch. And you just might get her back. And, which is sort of what he did. But you'll never hear that story. You won't hear that off them because... No, no. I mean, it gives me too much... I'm too in the story then. They don't want me in the story. Prefer to think John. If you hear it from John's point of view, it'll just be that he spoke to her on the phone and she said to him, "Come back and sort of work." But I always sort of found it interesting the fact that he got. I mean, it seemed too much like coincidence to me the fact he got married, you know, a week, a month after you. You know what I mean? Yeah, we we. I think it was we spurred each other into marriage. I mean, the the John and Yoko story is like, it's almost like a piece of conceptual art, isn't it? That they. That they, they created for themselves. They great. did, and, and that's the interesting thing is when you look at the 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 reality versus the story. It is I kind of get the fact that it's conceptual art, so it's kind of an idealized version that they like. And I, I'm like, okay, they're artists; they do that. But the problem for me is when it erases other people in the story. 
I was interested to hear that Paul is quite aware that they do this. He, he clearly believes in their re relationship and their love, but he also understands that it's a story and that he they don't want him to be part of it. I know, and I don't think, I think Paul and Linda, although they're known as an entity, Paul and Linda, I, they didn't play it the same way at all. They, they played their relationship. They, it was more, even though she's omnipresent in his life, when we see pictures yep. of her, they're somehow at the same time playing it down as well. They branded their love so well. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I don't know if Paul and Linda just didn't want to commercialize their relationship or they just didn't see it as an art statement as well. No, I think they were, I think they were being quite sensible. I mean, I mean <laughs> going up to Scotland and hiding away was quite sensible. I yeah, mean, maybe it was better for the relationship. Life is better that way. It's not just that they're hiding away, but that's one, you know, element of it. But they're also, you know, they're also having a kind of, you know, a relationship that's not in the glare of the the lens. I'm glad people like that interview that I did with him in '86 because a lot of his interviews, sometimes his interviews weren't very good because he was stoned. I know. Oh, really? Is that the issue? Sometimes it was, yes. I know, I know, because I knew his PR at the yeah. time. I remember, you know, there was someone on the NME interviewed him and kind of stitched him up, really. And he says, well, it's very unfair, that, because Paul was just really stoned and was sharing his spliffs with the guy. <laughs> he was interviewing him and just, like, got off his head, basically. <laughs> that is funny. And I think that that, you know, I was talking about the fact that he, all these people talk about him being highly intelligent. But I think in some ways, all of these, like, high interviews that he gave in the 80s and early 90s kind of undermined that part of him. Yeah, this one I'm thinking of was more in the 70s, oh, well, actually. But well, yeah. there was the 70s, too, actually. We haven't really talked about Paul and his love of weed. <laughs> <laughs> and is that because Paul was so stressed that he needed to self-medicate, or just he just liked to party and weed was his drug of choice? I just, I don't know if it's even that he liked to party. I just thought he was, he thought it was a good idea, really. <laughs> he enjoyed it. That's what girls get you into my life is supposedly about. Yeah, he it's not about a girl, a girl, which we all thought it was. It's about marijuana. You thought this is a really good idea. I mean, I mean, I know it's becoming a truism almost. We know all this is like a cliche about when 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 Dylan comes up to the hotel in New York in '64, and Paul is saying, "I'm thinking clearly for the first time," telling Malevers to write down everything he's saying. But I think thought, oh, this is a good idea, actually. <laughs> he must have liked what he saw in it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he's smoking. You know, I think he uses it as a creative tool. Do you? Yeah. Not, a, not a, an anxiety thing, like a, like a drink, somebody drinks to sort of counter anxiety? Well, a bit of each, maybe. But, you know, I, you know I, I'm, he's one of those people who go into the studio, have a mild spliff and just start working. Okay. It'll, it'll act as sort of fuel. Oh, that's interesting, but not stone, like not out of his head. No. Yeah. I mean, a lot of musicians I know who smoke a lot, uh, but they're not smoke. you know, they're not doing it just to get off their heads. It's a t it's an aid. You know, I know, I mean, I'm not, I won't go into the details of who, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, people I know quite well, you know, but yeah, it's always been like yeah. that. And, and people say, oh, how come they're just not zonked? Because they're using it in a different way. That's why. That's interesting. That makes Paul not just seem like a, you know, like a stoner, but in that he's feeding his, his yeah. creativity in a way. I've no doubt of that. 
Okay, so thank you so much for this. It's been so much fun talking to you. I really appreciate it. I love your perspective. Hi, everyone. This is Diana. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you to all the people who have left great reviews for One Sweet Dream. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star rating or review as it will really help other people find the podcast. Thank you. Until next time. Bye. And I meant, if I could have, I might have just lengthened that word drag for about a thousand years to get the meaning in it. But it was all over and gone. Of course, the minute that appears in print, in black and white, all the Caribbean, I'm being asked to move the editors have been to it and so on and so on, and I'm just one of a million punters saying what is. Well, McCarthy here, you know, they did downtown London last night, and I was asked by our reporter, our correspondent, what is the feeling to wear on here in the death of his dear Lombard Rosa? Score was, it's a drag. Hey ho, on to other matters. In the Philippines today, you know, I'm being on the show. It's a drag, that's what he said. No, I you do. I understood you it. Do. You, you, I'm, I'm, sure understood people, I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people, you know, none kind of Fleet Street editors did understand it, you know. Just, well, Hunter Davis was on the television that night giving a very reasoned account of John. Yes, was, you know, he sprang he sprang right up there, you know, the puppet sprang right up and all oh, that. Yeah, I, thought that was a bit I thought it was well tasteless. We all did actually. Oh, Jesus Christ, you know, we're ready with the answer, aren't we? Aren't we just ready with the summary? Mind you, Hunter had admitted to us years ago that he already had our obituaries written. They're all written and on file at the Times. So they just update them. Yeah, I know, I know. Which is kind of chilling to learn, you know, that he'd already done us. Well, so obviously he just pulled his obituary out for John and went to it, you know. But, um, you know, the question is, which is the more sensitive thing, my thing or his thing? And so I got into this legal thing. And, you know, looking back on it, I say I got a lot of guilt off that. But you tell me what you would have done if the entire earnings that you'd earned, and, and in something like the Beatles, entire earnings is a big figure. This is everything we'd ever done to all the American tours, all the record success, everything we'd ever done up to somewhere around about Hey Jude. And that was about to disappear was about to go into someone's pocket. And the, the guy I'm talking about is fine. Um, and he he had five million dollars the first year managed the people's. So I, I smelled a rat. I thought, well, five million in one year, how long is it going to take him to get rid of it all? Um, so I started to resist, and I was given a lot of pressure. They, also, they, they called, they said, oh, you're always stalling. This is when I, they came to sign clients' country, you probably heard them. But they, they thought it was part of you being a They said, who are we going to get? We looked at Lord Beeching. We looked at all these people. John interviewed Lord Beeching, because he's done the railways so, so great. 
really beginning. But we wanted what we called Mr. X. We knew we needed someone after Brian. And so my, we had a meeting and I said, we really need Mr. X. And if we can get someone really great, it'd be fabulous. Um, so then the beaching thing came along and then I just met my in-laws and I was pretty impressed and he's a pretty impressive guy and it would have been great but obviously everyone worried that because it was my father-in-law I'd be the one who'd look after I think there must obviously be some element of that so that worried me and quite naturally they just said no we can't have him so in the end it turned out to be fine and I said to people, well, I want out of this. And they said, uh, you can't. I said, I want to sue this guy. Fine. And they said, you can't. He's not a party to any of the agreements. So it became clear I had to sue the Beatles. So obviously I became the baddie. I, I put on a black hat. Um, but afterwards, you see, the thing is, it's like when you get in a sensation in a newspaper and the retraction is always... Uh, we played it on the, on the back of the sports page, the bottom of the sports page, isn't it? The truth of that whole thing is that, yes, I did take the Beatles to the High Court, which is like a highly traumatic period, having to front that one out. No, imagine, seriously, having to front that one out. The world's world crazy, just insane, so insecure. And after the reason I grew the beard, one of the other reasons was sort of split. Yeah, I know people actually went and put hair on their face, often behind that stuff. It's not from the cover-up, yeah. And... Uh, I had this big beer and some went to the high court and everything. I managed to save that and the judge said something about the prattle of a second class salesman talking about a client. They actually, they put in evidence this big expecting us not to look at it. It was their side and nothing looked at what they put in. But we, my whole life was on the line at that point. I, I felt that this was the, this was the fire. This was the furnace, you know. Finally, arrived. And we used to get shakes in our voices. Neil asked, well, you talk to Neil about some of the meetings. We got the nicks and shakes. It was very, something we'd never, ever had before. Remember Neil quite clearly trying to, the aforementioned parties of... Let's see if that's coming up. Anyway, it's just an option. It's on Earth, boys. But, uh, yeah, so we went, we went through a lot of uh, all those problems, but the nice thing was to say afterwards, the little retraction on the sports page was that each one of them in turn, just very, very quietly, very briefly said, oh, thanks for that. Straight all the way. That was about all I ever heard about it. I've never, to this day, no one's ever gone into debt. No, that's never actually said, but you, it has been that you were right. In the end, you were right. So that's what I mean, you know. Well, it, it was actually said, but again, see, John turned it round. Like this thing in the Observer, he said, but you're always right, aren't you? There was always this thing. So it, I mean, it was really, it was crazy for me because I'd come from Liverpool and I thought the idea was to try and get it right, you know? And it was quite surprising to find that if you did get it right, people could then turn that one around and say, well, you're always right, aren't you, smarmy? Or whatever, you know? You go, oh, and I'm like intelligent enough to be able to see that angle the minute they go, oh, shit, I haven't thought of that. It's like moving the goalposts. It's that one, you know, it's like, oh, okay, fair enough. Someone after Brian. And so my we had a meeting and I said, we really need Mr. X. And if we can get someone really great, it'd be fabulous. 
Um, so then the beaching thing came along, and I just met my in-laws, and I was pretty impressed. And he's a pretty impressive guy, and it would have been great, but obviously everyone worried that because it was my father-in-law, I'd be the one who looked after. I think there must obviously be some element of that. So that worried me. And quite naturally, they just said, no, we can't have him. So in the end, it turned out to be fine. And I said to people, well, I want out of this. And they said, uh, you can't. I said, I want to sue this guy. Fine. And they said, you can't. He's not a party to any of the agreements. So it became clear I had to sue the Beatles. So obviously, I became the baddie. I, I put on a black hat. Um, but afterwards, you see, the thing is, it's like when you get in a sensation in a newspaper and the retraction is always... Uh, we played it on the, on the back of the sports page, the bottom of the sports page. Instantly. The truth of that whole thing is that, yes, I did take the Beatles to the High Court, which is like a highly traumatic period, having to front that one out. No, imagine, seriously, having to front that one out. The world's feel through the world's I feel through crazy, just insane, so insecure. Half of the reason I grew the beard, well, the other reason was sort of split. Yeah, I know people actually when they put hair on their face, often the heart does that. It's a cover-up, yeah. And uh, I had this big beard, and so I went to the high court and everything. I managed to save that, and the judge said something about the prattle of a second-class salesman. Talking about a client. They actually, they put in evidence this big, expecting us not to look at it. It was their side, and nobody looked at what they put in. But we, my whole life was on the line at that point. I, I felt, I felt this, was the, this was the fire, this was the furnace, you know. Finally, it arrived. And we used to get shakes in our voices. Neil asked, Well, you talk to Neil about some of the meetings. We got the mix and shakes. It was very, something we'd never ever had before. Remember Neil quite clearly trying to, the aforementioned parties. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we went, we went through a lot of uh, almost problems. But the nice thing was to say afterwards, the little retraction on the sports page was that each one of them, in turn, just very very quietly, very briefly, said, "Oh, thanks for that." Say it all the way. That was about all I ever heard about it. I've never, to this day, no one's ever gone into debt. No, that's it. never actually said, but you, well, it has been that you were right. In the end, you were right. So that's what I mean, you know. Well, it, it was actually said, but again, see, John turned it round. It like this thing in the Observer. He said, but you're always right, aren't you? There was always this thing. So it, I mean, it was really, it was crazy for me because I come from Liverpool and I thought the idea was to try and get it right, you know. And it was quite surprising to find that if you did get it right, people could then turn that one around and say, well, you're always right, aren't you, smarmy? Or whatever, you know. You go, oh, and I'm like intelligent enough to be able to see that angle the minute they go, oh, shit, I haven't thought of that. It's like moving the goalposts. It's that one, you know, it's like, oh, okay, fair enough. I mean, it occurred quite a few times, you know, because I'm pretty, um, they kind of, you know, ruthless, ambitious, all that stuff. Not showbiz. But I'm pretty, uh, can be pretty forceful if, if we've got to uh, make a record. The thing is, the trouble is, in trying to set the record straight and trying to do all this, I don't want to blame John or make anyone think. I mean, I, I did this thing recently with Hunter Davis, and they pulled out one line, John could be a manoeuvring swine.
I'll tell you exactly why I said that, was that we had a business meeting to break up the Beatles, one of the famous ones that we've been having, still having, still haven't done it, 17 years later. Um, we had this meeting where we were in New York, and we all flew in, especially George came off his tour, his disastrous tour he had, it wasn't too good. You know, um, Ringo flew in, Ike flew in, we were all in New York at the plaza for the big final settlement meeting. John was at Dakota. As you know, New York geography, that's like half a mile away. And John sent a balloon over. Listen to this balloon. Well, you've got to be pretty cool to go and handle that stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. George rung him up. You fucking maniac! Gonna take your fucking dark glasses off and come and look at us, man! I gave him a whole load of that shit. And later, I was around at the same time with another meeting, similar thing, where John, everything was going swinging, we had it all settled. Well, the last minute, John asked for an extra million pounds. Told him one, it's an extra million pounds. So, of course, that meeting blew up, disarray, and that finished that particular meeting. Later, we got a bit friendly, you know, because occasionally there were little... Um, stepping stones of friendship in this kind of apple sea, you know. Um, and one of those times, I said to him, what was all that about? Why did you actually offer the million? He said, I just wanted cards in my hand. I wanted cards to play with. Now, that's a manoeuvre. That's the kind of, I wouldn't do that. Number. Uh, somebody who's, it's good. It's a good, absolutely standard business practice. You know, he just wanted cards to play with. He wanted a couple of jacks. To, to, to up your pair of nines. <laughs> and that's, you know, he was quite open about that. But of course, if I come out now that he's sort of um, died and all the tragedy that's sort of surrounded him, particularly, you know, the assassination of the craziness, it wouldn't just be a maniac and stuff, it wouldn't just be a car accident, it was particularly. Um, in a way, I'm kind of expected to just sort of say, he was a saint, he was always a saint, I remember him as a saint, I love him as a saint. But that would be a lie. He was one great guy, and part of his greatness was that he wasn't a saint. He was a great guy, but he was pretty uh, sacrilegious and uh, pretty upfront about it, you know. That was, that was half the fun. It seems strange to me that they didn't, but they seem quite happy just to sit out in St. George's Hill, you know, just languishing. I always wanted to make the group great and even greater. And when we made Let It Be, it was a bit crummy. I insisted that we made Out Abbey Road because I knew what we were capable of and I didn't think we pulled it off in that Let It Be. And then with the film, straight the remix, uh, we, we kind of walked away from that LP. We didn't really want to know. In fact, the best version of it was before anyone got hold of it. The Glyn Johns early mixes were great, but they were very bare, very spartan album, but it's great. Now it'd be one of the hippest albums going if they, if they brought it, they're probably on bootlegs. But it, before it got its overdubs, before it had all its raw edges off it, that was like one of the best Beatle albums, because it was, it was a bit kind of avant-garde, really, because it was just purely as we recorded it down there in Apple or on the roof. It was that, with a good sound on it from Glenn Johns, just a couple of mics over the drums, and very basic, because he's a basic project. 
I I loved it. But um, yeah, but what was it on uh, the Let It Be? All those things. Driving and Yeah. So I got I became known as being overpowering. So Dude's Abbey Road would do. Yeah, Maxwell Silver Hammer because I got some grief on that. I yeah, took yeah. three days to do that. Now you know how long Trevor Horn takes sure, to do a mix sure, for Frankie. Sure, sure. You know, so this is a strange thing. I feel vindicated as time goes on. 